Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Julie. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 36, Under Lock and Key. And um, this is part of my elaboration on the priorities of survival referenced last season in our Back to Reality podcast. Um, so we've done shelter, house light of shelter, we've done water, lifeblood, we've done fire, the fire people. And so this is our podcast on food. Um, I'm Gumby. And I'm still Teresa. And we are at Northgate Park in Durham, North Carolina, which is one of our favorite places to do podcasts, especially on a gray, possibly rainy day like today, because we've got a little uh, covered shelter, which is one of the things when we go to a town, we like Google covered shelters and find out where they are really quick. Um, Let's see, what's going on in our world right now? Um, well, we're both not feeling that good this morning. We got like an achy, kind of not feeling great, possibly fighting off some kind of virus. Um, anything else you want to check in about before we get started? Mm, I'm just so bogged down in stuff I need to remember for the podcast. I can't think of anything. All right. So let's do this. (laughs) And let me not wreck my guitar. Okay, so let me start off with a Quinn quote, um, which is why this episode is called Under Lock and Key. Daniel Quinn writes in his book, Beyond Civilization, who are the people of our culture? It's easy to pick out the people who belong to our culture. If you go somewhere, anywhere in the world, where the food is under lock and key, you'll know you're among people of our culture. They may differ wildly in relatively superficial matters, in the way they dress, in their marriage customs, in the holidays they observe, and so on. But when it comes to the most fundamental thing of all, getting the food they need to stay alive, they're all alike. In these places, the food is all owned by someone, and if you want some, you'll have to buy it. This is expected in these places. The people of our culture know no other way. Making food a commodity to be owned was one of the great innovations of our culture. No other culture in history has ever put food under lock and key, and putting it there is the cornerstone of our economy. For if the food wasn't under lock and key, who would work? Indeed. So we want to explore um, not only Daniel Quinn's sentiment right there, how food is used to control us, but also ways to circumvent that, ways to get food that is not under lock and key, Um, to try to give you some tools and kind of arm you to escape society. Because as Quinn points out, you know, like not knowing how to feed yourself is a pretty major issue that keeps a lot of people from rebelling more. I kind of struggle with the big picture of this because the fact that we have so much food, this agricultural revolution Um, And we put so much of our energy into turning the Earth's biomass into human biomass by making more and more food, which turns into more and more human flesh, is kind of an underlying, maybe the underlying problem. Hmm. Um, That there's so many of us doing so much, so many of these bad practices that kind of has got us in this situation. So on the one hand, it's kind of like running out of food is something that sort of needs to happen. 
You know, it's got to be around the corner. We're, we're outstripping our resources, and sooner or later our, popul- our population has to diminish. So that big picture versus the little picture of you as an individual who wants to escape society, learning some tools to feed yourself. Um, and I think it is important to focus on that little picture in this case because the tools to feed yourself are actually going to diminish the most destructive way to provide food to the humans, which is the way our culture does it, which is mass totalitarian agriculture, horrendous practices to get meat to us, um, and then wasting it, and then protecting their right to waste it with locks on dumpsters and fucking bullshit like that. (laughs) So by you learning tricks and methods to turn away from that, to not support that anymore, I think by feeding yourself in that way is actually not only good for you as an individual, but good in the big picture. Um, So, Teresa? You know, I want to take it back and take it back to the old school. Take it back, y'all. Take it back to uh, over 6,000 years ago. I I got this from a website that was like a financial health website, something that um, I would not normally reference, but the way that the guy wrote it is is pretty intriguing. So over 6,000 years ago, the most advanced civilization on the planet was Sumer in the fertile plains of ancient Mesopotamia, uh, the Mesopotamian Valley, which is uh, modern-day Iraq, which we don't think of as being such a fertile place. Damn, when you said take it back, you weren't kidding. No, right. Um, And the Sumerians were powerful because they were able to figure out how to have an agricultural surplus. And because they weren't hungry then, they were able to explore even more avenues of technology, whether that was in weaponry or agricultural practices, to have even more of an agricultural surplus. Again, in the Roman Empire, um, Romans invaded lands looking to secure additional food sources. And in the French Revolution, this is just tied into how food is power and can have control over the people. So when the French Revolution started, In 1789, it was because people were starving. They had finally reached that point where they had enough. And again, just as an example, I'll give some more later, but in the American Civil War, the Union uh, cut off the South's food supply as well as scorched earth policy of slashing and burning all of the fields where they were growing food. So we start to see how... Uh, societies that keep food as power, keep food as controlling the people, has gone back for thousands upon thousands of years. And like Umby said, we want to give you some information about how maybe you could take back some of that control. And so the first thing I'm going to talk about is free food. Um, Just the very act of attaining or obtaining food for free is subversive. Um, I remember reading about the Victory Gardens and how that was a subversive act because you were basically saying, no, I got this. I don't need your, you know, support from this government. I don't need the imports or I don't need anyone else. I've got this in my own kitchen garden. But nowadays, a lot of us don't have kitchen gardens. Some of us don't even have kitchens. Um, (laughs) So where do we turn to to look for free food? And one of the first... um, organizations that we have on the list is Food Not Bombs. And evidently, this year, 2020, um, May 24th, 2020, is their 40th anniversary. And Food Not Bombs is this um, supposedly really great organization. They're in uh, 
supposedly 65 countries with over a thousand chapters of Food Not Bombs spread throughout the world. Um, they offer um, vegan or vegetarian fare just because um, they don't want to promote the additional resources that are required for, um, for raising meat, for eating meat. Um, and I imagine also because of where they get food, they don't want to like, you know, have the potential to possibly sicken a bunch of people. But as Gumby and I have talked about before with our dumpster diving, we haven't gotten sick from the food, at least nothing that I can know that I can remember. Um, so yeah, the thing about Food Not Bombs uh, is really cool. It's basically gleaning food, whether it's um, dumpster diving or going to the stores and asking for any surplus um, and just finding food, even from restaurants, and then making it available as meals to people. And you don't have to sign any waivers. You don't have to prove that you're poor. You can be a rich, successful businessman and go to one of these meals. And they actually encourage that because it's a meeting of people from all different um, strata of the population. Somewhere um, that you can also obtain free food is through a really, really free market. And we have one of these that is still active in the area in Carborough, North Carolina. And it's not all the time you can get free food there. Um, what it often turns into is a lot of junk. Um, <laughs> and one of the things I don't like about the really, really free market is I've brought stuff there. And you see a lot of people, and I don't know, it just brings out this greed. You ever gone to the really, really free market, Teresa? Well, I tried to go to one here in Durham, and it was definitely weird. And I admit, I brought some stuff that would probably be considered garbage um, by some. Well, that's not even what I oppose so much. I mean, you know, you bring what you, one person's trash is another person's treasure. But the way people, like, I will bring a box, and there's such a mad rush to get the stuff first that people will be pulling stuff out of your box before you set it down. <laughs> it's just got this vibe of, like, really poor people with really heightened materialism. I don't know. There was something off about that. Mm. But in reference to this, one of the things I, like, why I added this to the list is sometimes, like, sometimes they have special occasions and free food will be included. What I used to bring is boxes and boxes of my dumpster food, and that would just go so quick. And really, really free markets were actually an offshoot of Food Not Bombs, the first one being at a Food Not Bombs meeting in um, Christchurch, New Zealand, of mm. all places. And, you know, like Gumby said, the really, really free market, as well as Food Not Bombs, they're kind of... Um, they're really good ideas in theory, although in our area, we supposedly have three chapters of Food Not Bombs, and we supposedly have a local chapter of the Really Really Free Market, and in both cases, the people that are in charge are completely unresponsive. It's like they've, they've escaped society, but they forgot to take their name off of the email contact list. So I was thinking... Um, Maybe in the future, if, we, if we're if we around this area, we could do a really, really, really free market, or mm. we could do uh, my version of Food Not Bombs, and I would call it Food Not Trash. Yeah, I applaud the subversiveness of these things Teresa's talking about right now, from uh, Food Not Bombs to the really, really free market, but the practice of it sometimes gets skewed, just like us doing this podcast. I've had people like curious about, like, well, I'd like to listen to one of your podcasts, and they're not to this level of technology that they know how to listen to a podcast. So here I go encouraging somebody to up their level of technology. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, there's a lot of great ideas that are a little bit polluted, including our own. But again, I applaud the subversiveness because to make food free is hugely, deeply subversive in a culture like ours where food's under lock and key. Indeed. 
And another one that I, I think is really quaint, I think it's a really cute idea, and we've actually been able to utilize this uh, a number of times, both on receiving food from it and putting food back in, are these little free food pantries. Now, maybe you've heard of little free libraries. It's the same concept. It's um, often a little tiny, it almost looks like a, a fancy mailbox. It looks like a house, and there's a little door that you open up, and people have left canned goods or some other appropriate items that just in case it were to get too hot or too cold. I mean, you wouldn't put ice cream in there. Um, but we've gotten like cans of beans or occasionally like uh, sauces or something like that. And these are often found in neighborhoods that probably don't have people that really, really need stuff. Yeah, in our brief interaction with these little things, <laughs> it's like we're the only ones using them. We, we are putting like by far the best food that's in there when we drop it off. We come back like a month or two later, our food is still in there. <laughs> and we take it back. Um, <laughs> another one that I saw of a really, really, or uh, excuse me, a little free food pantry was, you know, the old, well, somewhat old um, newspaper stands that, you know, you put the coins in and then you can open it up. Oh, yeah. I was just talking about knowing how to break into those the other day. Yeah, remember? well, they've taken out the mechanism where you have to put money in to open it. And that can be a really cool way to house food. Um, there's one in a church parking lot that we've gone to, and I've even left in there like extra umbrellas and ponchos, just things that maybe if somebody was looking for food, they might also find these other items useful, even, you know, toiletries for whatever that's worth. And, um, and another place that is probably, I, I would say the most subversive yet is just going through your stuff, getting a box, putting your stuff in the box and leaving it in a park or leaving it at a rest area, or wherever you're traveling. Even a street corner, we've done that. Oh yeah, we left <laughs> we left like a bunch of eggs in the cartons. They were totally fine, um, but we left a bunch of eggs in a box and uh, and left it on a street corner. And if you want to make a uh, sociological study of the population, just watch <laughs> people's reaction to the box. It's fascinating. The people that won't even make eye contact with it. They treat the freaking box like it's a beggar who might ask them for change. I mean, there's something wrong with some people out there. But then you get people that are like, they're the scavenger type. And we, just for fun, we took a box um, with us on a trip, I think to the mountains of North Carolina set it out at a rest stop, and then had a drinking game. Whenever somebody went up to the box and took something, we took a drink. And we tried to guess which people would take stuff. And there was this one older lady, and she was with her, I guess, her granddaughter. And she took, like, a bunch of Halloween candy, and her granddaughter took a bunch of, like, fun little toys. So that's good. Um, <laughs> so they almost that was a cleaned, dumpster beer burn. Yeah, that, they cleaned the box out. Now... Um, we've also, I've also left a box, like <laughs> it was threatening rain and I just needed to find a roof. So I put it like in a parking garage. I'm not sure what happens to these boxes if they get thrown out by authorities or whatever, but you know what? That stuff was either from the dumpster or it was about oh. to go Gumby. Excuse me. In the dumpster, like Gumby's about to. Um, so I'm okay with that. I mean, if it's possible that someone can benefit from it, all right. And uh, the final thing I have listed, although there's probably tons of other ideas, is uh, when we had our trailer and a little piece of land that we were renting out in the country, we would have antisocial socials or just potlucks, but we like to call them antisocial potlucks. And we would often, you know, we would encourage everyone to bring, you have something to say? Well, I just wanted to, the, the name came antisocial social because 
um, particularly I was having like intense social anxiety at the time. And I really wanted to try to like participate more in community and especially do this subversive act of sharing this free food as well as other stuff we were scavenging and getting an excess of. We wanted to share it and not make it a money thing. Um, and I wanted to create an atmosphere because one of the things I was learning is I'm not the only one with social anxiety by far. So many people out there are wanting to reach out and they've just, they we're losing the ability. So I wanted to create an atmosphere where in the description it said, you can come, you can check out the stuff. We're going to have a fire going. We'll have food to share. And you can just like sit by yourself under a tree or at a picnic table and leave without saying goodbye. And this is okay. This is like the way this works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we even put out, like, records. We put out, like, brand-new jewelry that had nothing wrong with it. It was just last season's jewelry, and there was a huge garbage bag of it in the dumpster with nothing in it but jewelry. And um, clothes that were brand-new, some that were used but still in good shape. And so we just would take a tarp or three and put everything out on the tarps, and people would feel free to bring their own stuff or, you know, trade up for something that we had or whatever. Anything else you want to say about that? Hmm. All right, so moving on um, and going back to that idea that um, food can be used as power. It can be used to control people. This is a very old tactic of controlling people through food. Um, Yeah, we just put out a podcast recently, which was Washington through Jackson, um, U.S. Presidents Exposed. And we talk about Thomas Jefferson, and this is a big tactic that he really promoted was a way to control the Indians, get them dependent, trade with them, um, get them needing our goods, including our food. Um, So it goes like way back in American history and then further beyond that. But hell, we got George Washington that's telling uh, Mad Anthony Wayne to go out there. You know, he's promoting destroy the food. You want to like win the battle against the indigenous people, crush their food. Hungry people can't fight as well. Um, we keep seeing food come up as we're studying the presidents lately, you know, over and over as ways to control people. Exactly. And this um, <clears throat> food power is actually a term. It means when a government, a company, a leader, or a country takes the food security away in order to get something in return from the population. And there's several examples of this. Um, My first example uh, was the Civil War, which I mentioned, uh, just cutting off the food supply uh, for the South and, like, slashing and burning their crops. Would the the buffalo be an example of what you're describing, too? Oh, definitely. The indigenous people got fucked. I mean, we've also covered that. Yeah, uh, we were just willing to wipe out an entire species and almost did to win a battle against another culture. Yeah, who was... There was some guy that... uh, Columbus Delano, he was like, you know... If we just get rid of the, the buffalo, the Plains Indians, they, they won't be able to live that in, their, in the way that they were living. They have to, like, assimilate to our culture. There's kids talking, so it's distracting me. Um, there was this guy, I think his name is Earl Butts. Um, he was the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. And in 1974, there was a very um, succinct quote that he said, and he said, food is a weapon. No shit. Um, Food has been used in embargoes to create commercial and financial penalties um, on various countries or groups of people that don't agree with us. Uh, Here's an example. And, you know, it happens to everybody. Uh, It can happen to everybody. So when I say this, just imagine that it's not the quote-unquote bad people only that are suffering. 
So in August of uh, 1914, the Allied powers began an embargo um, on important items that were normally shipped to Germany. However, it wasn't completely effective until food was added to the list, and then it brought them to their knees. Um, let's see. In the Great Depression, oh my God. So the Great Depression left farmers with a glut of their crops or their um, uh, agriculture, their animals, and it drove prices down. But luckily, our benevolent president, Franklin Roosevelt, um, in order to create artificial scarcity, had the USDA pay farmers to plow under their fields and slaughter their pigs while people were starving. Good for the economy. Yeah, gaining the power, gaining the upper hand. And there's a few more examples here. Let me see if I can read my scribbles. In the early 1980s, the U.S. tried to impose a grain embargo on the Soviet Union, um, but the Soviets just imported grain from elsewhere, although it was at a higher cost. This one's fucked up. Uh, Nixon poisoned livestock in Cuba. This was a continued campaign from President Kennedy. And I think maybe this might be possibly the most fucked up and devious of all. And it involves President Jimmy Carter. So he found out, like he denied, uh, first of all, he denied rice to Laos, who we had just picked on just for whatever reason. They were nearby uh, some other targets that we had. But then he found out that India was trying to send 100 buffalo, I'm thinking they're water buffalo, to Vietnam to help the starving population of Vietnam. You know, the, po the population that we decimated in the Vietnam War. And Carter said, if you send those buffalo to Vietnam, I will pull the food for peace aid that your country is receiving. So he didn't want to help Vietnam at all. Even if it meant another country was helping them, he blocked the help from another country. And that is how powerful food can be in these dealings. I just think that's sick. Mm -hmm. um, God, I don't want to get too far away from the topic here, but I have one other, I guess, one other thing I want to share before we move on. There are four main nations that export enough agriculture to exert food power. And I was asking Gumby if he knew. Yeah, I was surprised what they were. I didn't guess them. So the United States. I got that one. Is clearly at the top in the world. They're the largest producer and exporter of food in the world. Followed by Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Now, I got this uh, from a source I didn't write down, but... If anybody has any other information on that, that blew my mind because uh, we'll talk in a little bit about, like, for example, Mexico. We get a lot of our produce from Mexico, um, but they weren't on the list. So does that mean that they don't, like, produce enough? They have enough to export, but they don't necessarily have enough to exert that food power on another country or group of people. So now we're going to get into some um, ways that you can get food that is not under lock and key. And we're starting with, uh, I, I tried to, I, I came up with this list this time, and I tried to start with the stuff that was the most within the realm of the familiarity within our culture and branch out from there, further and further away from, you know, the heart of our culture. So, Teresa, you want to take it from there? Oh, take it away. Sure. Well, <laughs> Well, our first one is food stamps. Yeah, food stamps. And I um, I well, actually... Go actually, I've got some personal experience with this. Um, 
Well, I grew up like really poor and I remember my mom had to get food stamps and it was a shameful thing. Like it was an embarrassing thing. Um, I was a kid. I didn't know it was embarrassing, but I got that from my mom because she was embarrassed. It was embarrassing to pull it out at the store, the, the food stamps. It meant you're poor. It meant you had failed. And, uh, the more I've thought about this over the years, like we, we actually don't have food stamps. I don't think we can qualify now that no. Teresa did the research for this podcast, but I didn't even want to try because we don't need it for one thing. And for another thing, um, one of the things I want to warn about with some of these uh, ways to get free food is government involvement. Mm-hmm. You really don't want them in your business. They cause problems. And at the very most, they start taking over your brain. They make you feel ashamed. That's part of one of their tools. Um, we shame the poor people and the homeless people out of living that way. We, we make it just create a whole picture of you have failed. Um, so I, I, I tasted that firsthand with the food stamps. So I just wanted to throw in my little personal experience of, uh, of that before we go on. Go ahead. That, thank you. Um, yeah, I was about to say I don't have any experience with food stamps because I guess I'm one of the lucky people that um, I don't qualify so, yay. <laughs> um, food stamps actually debuted May 16, 1939 in Rochester, New York. And get this, when they first came out, you had to buy them. So for every dollar that you paid for food stamps, you got back a dollar fifty. So your buying power was increased by 50 cents. And back then, that, was, that could be the difference between your family eating for a week or two weeks. Um, I just made that up, but no, a dollar, um, bought a dollar 50 worth of food stamps and people were like, Hey, you know, this is kind of cool. Nowadays, um, I found this interesting. The highest percentage of food stamps per capita, this was from 2015 is found in the district of Columbia, um, right around where all those politicians go. (laughs) Coincidence. Um, with 22%, and that's actually tied with New Mexico at 22%. wonder how many of the senators are using food stamps. Mm, probably none, and I'll tell you why. So um, you have to, as an individual, I just got this information for an individual. So for an individual, you can only make $1,245 U.S. per month. You must work 30 hours a week. And you must be involved 80 hours a month, whether that's work or volunteering or some sort of program that's, uh, you know, deemed worthy by the program. And you can have no more than $2,250 in the bank. So all of these stipulations are kind of fucked up because it's like they want to keep people just in this very narrow place of, well, you're not hungry, but you ain't getting anywhere either. So you're not going to fight. We're not going to have an uprising of hungry people like in France in the revolution, but we are going to keep you poor enough that you have to follow what we say. Let's see. What else? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'd say that was another uh, big innovation. Daniel Quinn talks about our culture, you know, putting food under lock and key. Um, another thing that happened in America that we're l- learning more and more about um, through the presidents and other research vehicles, I would say, is this welfare program, this hobo army, you know, that um, along the way, the government figured out that people that are truly hungry are going to revolt. Mm. They might overthrow the damn government. But, you know, the the Democrats, the leftists, the liberals, you know, who we call the bleeding heart liberals, the welfare programs, they never quite help the homeless not be homeless. We have more homeless out there than ever before. Um, thanks, Obama. And Yeah, more on that later. Yeah. So... 
it, it doesn't fix the problem, but it takes the edges off just enough that it diffuses um, people that might feel extreme enough to revolt. So the government's less threatened. And the government, um, you know, every program or every action that the government takes, there are lobbyists. Um, oh, I forgot to share this fact that uh, when Abraham Lincoln became president, he was staying at this certain hotel in Washington, D.C. I know, I'm making it quick. And in the lobby of the hotel um, gathered uh, all these different people that were wanting jobs. They were asking favors. They had a bunch of things in mind that they wanted and they uh, wanted to have done. And they were smoking and they were drinking like gin and bourbon. And Lincoln came back to the hotel and he's like, my, my, what's all this? And that was supposedly where the term lobbyists came from because they were in the lobby of the hotel and they were asking for stuff. So what does this have to do with food stamps? Um, Occasionally, there's legislation that changes who is eligible for food stamps. I believe President Trump is trying to tighten um, kind of the, what am I trying to say, the the number, like all the different numbers that are involved in calculating if you're eligible for food stamps. And the government is lobbied, of course, by many different corporations that are directly hit by the amount of people that are using food stamps. For example, Walmart. For example, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, Kroger, which is a huge like nationwide chain that's under different, um, the grocery chain that's under different names throughout the country, as well as Kraft Foods. And I'll go ahead and say, you know, those are, those are the, con- uh, excuse me, the companies that are being, uh, that are lobbying to keep food stamps like increasing because that way those people that tend to get the food stamps tend to buy their products. There are only 10 companies that control almost every food and beverage brand in the world. Can I name them real quick? I named some of them already. I hope so. PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Nestle, General Mills, Unilever, Danone or Danon, Kellogg's, Mars, Associated British Foods, ooh, I spit, and Mondelez. So those companies control virtually every brand you see in the world when it comes to food and beverages. And I just think that's kind of sick that not only are we keeping people uh, under control, these companies are trying to keep the government under control. You see what I'm saying? It's all about who's in charge, who has the power, and, and it all comes down to, for this, for the food. All right, that's all I've got on food stamps. Gumby, did you want to add anything? Nope. All right, the next place that you can go to get food that's relatively mainstream are food pantries. And I would say the same danger applies like you've... uh, We've gone to a lot of food pantries, and a lot of times you've got to be processed. You've got to, like, give them information that I wasn't comfortable giving. Um, You know, you go in there and you're just like... Most of the time, it's a Christian organization, Um, I feel like the government has kind of pulled back and the churches have sort of stepped up. I don't know what kind of deal they have. But you would think a Christian organization, all they need to know is you're hungry. (laughs) You know, here's a hungry person, here's food. But often they want information, and I'm not sure what they do with all this information. um, But it's still that whole feeling of like you did something wrong. I've been arrested before, and it felt somewhat similar. Like you're sitting in a room, you're waiting for people to judge you. They're asking you... uh, very invasive questions that you don't feel like you really can, like, just say you don't want to answer. Um, But at the same time, I would say it's not as bad as food stamps. So we have utilized 
the food pantries. And we, we've made them work for us because we've wrapped our minds around, okay, this is their game. We'll play their game to get the food because if you're going to put locks on the dumpsters and put all the free food here in the church, all right, if this is the way you want it, screw it, we'll go to the church. And something that maybe, Gumby, you can explain your story because it's such a good story. Um, when we've been processed or we go through intake for these food pantries, uh, they often ask a lot of questions that, like, truthfully, we don't have an answer for. Um, an example of that would be, you know, what's your address? Well, I mean, <laughs> we live in a minivan. And I will say that even though I hate the system, the processing, the government behind it, often the individuals that you're interacting with are really cool people. They have already decided you're going to get fed. And so if you don't have the right answer, they will guide you to the right answer. Like the first time we ran into that address thing, we're like, well, we live in our van. And they're like, oh, that's kind of tough. Um, well, where do you park your van? Because um, if you park it in town, you know, you qualify. <laughs> that's right. So we just make up something like, oh, okay, I guess we are usually at the Super Walmart overnight, even though we weren't. So that got us to qualify. So usually dealing with people that really, truly want to give food to people who need it. And they themselves seem to be stuck under this system of, like, this government processing. This is important to remember if you're traveling, too. Because, like Gumby said, they kind of, for some reason, they need this information. And if you can be prepared, like if you can say, well, you know, we're staying in the Super Walmart parking lot. Or one time... God, this wasn't even food. I just needed some like feminine, like sanitary napkins, and they needed to know where we were sleeping. And I was like, uh, and the lady kind of guided me, and she was like, Are you staying in like a uh, an abandoned building? And I was like, Yes. I always feel kind of violated with these <laughs> questions. Like, Are you gonna come looking for me? Yeah, like, what the fuck? Like, you know, all you need to know is I'm hungry. You, you don't, you have no right to ask me these questions, but that's part of the game. They keep the food under lock and key. This is a different kind of lock and key. And I feel like ultimately they're trying to keep statistics so they can show how well the program's working, which is kind of sick. Um, we have this routine, like, when we are in the mountains of North Carolina, where we can, we have found a number of food pantries, whether they are daily, weekly, or monthly, and we can time our visits so that we're not hitting one food pantry more than others and, like, taking advantage, but, uh, but that we can still, you know, keep our food supply pretty stocked as we're in the mountains. And I think we mentioned this before, too, that food pantries, you know, we've had the feelings in the beginning of taking too much. Gumby, what do you have to say about that? I was just thinking about free food and, like, when we had a trailer and a refrigerator and could stockpile stuff like dumpsters here around Durham, just covered all of our needs and then some. You know, we'd forage a little bit to su supplement that um, and sometimes find roadkill. But in the van, the smoothest time, I think since we've been in the van, that we've had a system where free food really worked in a way that we, we liked how it, it, it was going, was when we were in the mountains in the summer and we'd hit like a couple towns. We'd go back and forth between these towns and sign up for the food pantries and just like stockpile, you know, get like as much free food as we can on the day we go into town, go up to our little place along the river and the, the woods, the mountains, and just be able to stay there for like all week and live off of this free food and um, just make like a weekly trip into town. I felt like that was really, um, that was escaping society. Mm -hmm. That really felt good. And what I was alluding to before was if you feel like, you know, maybe I'm not the person that needs to go to these food pantries, just know 
that when you get in the line, um, probably the majority of these people are going to have really snazzy smartphones, probably better vehicles than you. And um, we've even had, like, we've even listened to... Of course, to depending com- on who you are. I mean, well, yeah. Then like, us, anyway. Like, you know, we've heard people ordering pizzas in the line at the food pantry, and you're like, what the fuck? Like, I thought you were poor. In addition to other people just, like, you know, taking away from the comparison of you to other people, there is so much food in these food pantries that it's often going bad, especially the produce. Yeah, we've run into this a few times where the food is actually they're wishing more people would come pick it up. Yeah, they'll, they'll let you take as much produce as you want. And so many poor people are like psychologically, I'm not broken is a strong word, but under stress, and they're looking for comfort foods. So junk food goes so quick. If you're one of these people that's going through line at a food pantry and you're making healthy choices, We've surprised so many people that are like, wow, nobody ever gets that. And they're like, would you be interested in this big, like, bucket of whole wheat flour flour or something? (laughs) God, it never Because apparently most poor people don't want that. They're just grabbing the bags of Cheetos and shit like that. And that's the way it was with me and my mom when we had the food stamps. Like, it's really hard when you're poor not to just be grabbing the thing that's the immediate gratification. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a couple people in the food pantries like, I don't even know what that is. Like, well, it's food, and we're going to eat it. Um, Anything else you want to say about the food pantries? So um, that is uh, also to say that there are so many different programs out there. And Gumby has it kind of written down as liberal aid. Sounds like Kool-Aid. But it's totally... (laughs) It kind of is. It's kind of... Oh, that's... Yeah, that's a good (laughs) point. Um, So here's some things that I've got written down about some of the government programs. Um, there are seven crops that are heavily subsidized by the federal government. Corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, sorghum, milk, and meat. And I'm tying this back into the food pantries because it's interesting. They have these USDA boxes um, in some food pantries, and they're filled with corn, rice, (laughs) wheat, maybe some sort of evaporated or like... um, uh, non-perishable milk product and a can of pork. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, again, it's that, uh, whatever, uh, great depression mindset of like, well, we'll get these instead of having the farmers plow their fields under or burn, you know, slaughter their pigs, we'll give it out, but we'll give it out to the poor people that way. Like, you know, we can keep the farmers happy, keep the people fed a little bit. Um, God, there was, <laughs> I want to give this information, too, about the uh, food stamps program. It's, it's now called Supplemented Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. And the way that the food stamps program was back when um, FDR was in office, I told you that they had to buy food stamps, but they did away with that, and in 1969, they started giving away uh, food stamps without you having to buy it. And... Every 10 years from 1969, I just calculated the number of participants and the cost. And I'm not going to bore you with all of those years, but I just want to give you a general idea. So in 1969, there was just under 3 million participants at a cost of $250 million. 10 years later, in 1979, it exploded up to 17 million participants and $6 billion in costs. Now fast forward to 2009. 33 million participants, 
$53 billion in total costs for the program. And then I have data for 2019, just this past year. So 2009, we had 33 million. 2019, we have 34 million and 58 billion in costs. But it's interesting to note that from 2010 to 2017, the SNAP program had the highest number of participants ever in the 40 millions, whether it was 40 million, 42, 46 million, and the costs, of course, were astronomical. Who was president during that time? Um, I believe Obama. Ah. So we had a lot more people on the program, and it's interesting that we haven't figured out a better way to handle this. We just keep running up a bill, and more and more people are needing this, this program. And I think that's how the liberals want it. Yeah, I think a lot about, you know, underlying philosophies about why things are the way they are, because one of the things that's remarkable when you start getting into this whole processing is like, it's so unpleasant. It's so um, disorganized. And you start wondering, how the hell has nobody stepped up and been able to organize this better? And so after a while, I start thinking, I think this is intentional, at least to some extent. So why would this be left the way it is? And we already touched a little bit about this with the uh, shame. Um, But I think part of it is, you know, like Ted Kaczynski, he talks about the reformers taking over a revolution. So what could have been something like a whole new thing um, gets disempowered and it becomes a reform movement where you have the same old thing with a slightly different uh, slightly different makeup. Um, it's a way to kind of keep things the way they are. It's very disempowering. It keeps the poor feeling poor. Um, and I think the number one thing is it keeps us dependent. When I'm standing in these food pantry lines waiting to get processed, um, more and more I think about the Indians who were told, you know, all right, you can't hunt anymore because we have settlers. This is for your own protection. We don't want violence. So just give up your hunting and we've got you. We're going to bring in food for the government and your great white father in Washington will take care of his red children and bring you food. And um, over and over, that was either not done altogether or done very poorly and didn't really serve the people. But it met the goal, which was the real goal all along, get the people dependent, under control. And I also want to add that it's interesting we have a lot of different laws enacted to help supposedly keep the public, um, the population in the United States safe uh, when it comes to our food supply. And I was looking up a number of these bills, and again, I don't want to bore you, but I'll just name some of them. So let's see. There is the (laughs) Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, It was signed by President Obama on January 4th, 2011. There was also something um, called the Consumer Assistance to Recycle and Save Act that was passed in the House in 2009. Um, Let's see. There's all these different amendments, blah, blah, blah. But what's interesting is, and this information is from 2011, um, the CDC still reports that one in six Americans get sick from foodborne illnesses. 48 million people, 128,000 people hospitalized in 2011, and 3,000 die. So getting back to those liberal uh, you know, policies and laws and programs, what are we doing? This is still a huge problem, but 
if you just let people be scavengers, if you just let people do what they were going to do naturally, which is search for the food, forage for the food, hunt for the food, whether that's in a dumpster or in the woods, um, maybe we wouldn't need all of these laws because they're not working anyway. And if the welfare programs weren't there to kind of, uh, damn, I had a word in my head and it just flew out of my head, but to sort of keep things quelled, um, we would have recognized a long time ago in irrefutable terms that the system does not work. It does not serve the people. And there would have been a rebellion. And that was actually happening, which is what the welfare system was addressing. Yeah, just keep the, keep the people fed enough that they don't revolt. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Nope. Okay, we're going to move out of now, you know, the, the government-controlled ways to kind of get free food, to subvert the food under lock and key into ways that still are reliant on society um, but don't require all the government processing. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do is uh, go into restaurants or stores and pick up, like, packets of ketchup or salt. Um, I call it, instead of free salt or sea salt, I call it free salt. <laughs> and uh, I just have a little container with me. And if there's a, a store, you know, container of hot sauce or salt or something like that, I'll go ahead and fill up my container for And free. while you're talking about salt, salt is a very useful multi-use thing. So, you know, anytime you have a chance to get a, a pocket full of salt packs, um, the wise person dropping out of society will grab that. There's so many things you can do with salt. Yeah, and, and, you know, Gumby and I have said on several occasions that we haven't completely dropped out of society. And so occasionally we'll go somewhere and there'll be packets, uh, like let's say we're getting a hot dog or something, and there'll be packets of like um, relish or mayonnaise or mustard. And if we're going to the food pantries and getting, whether it's cans of tuna or chicken or what have you, um, or sometimes they'll give you like ground meat for making hamburgers or they'll give you a package of hot dogs or something. You'll have your condiments already taken care of and it didn't cost you a damn thing except just being savvy wherever you go. And we do this so much with coffee creamer. Like Gumby goes through two coffee creamers and two sugars every day with his coffee. So wherever we go or we can pick up extra, um, we do that. Anything else you want to say? Oh, roadside. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was. I wrote that because so often we've been on backpacking trips or just walking along the road. And um, Teresa used to do this more, but she would just pick up all these packs of hot sauce, ketchup, whatever, just laying on the roadside. <laughs> there is so much litter. People going to fast food and throwing out the bag, and then the little packets are either in the back or spill out. Um, that's another place we find them. And in the trash. You know, you go to a park, and people go there to eat their uh, food, often from a restaurant. So that's another place to find these little packs of condiments. And of course, you don't want to live off of condiments, but they really add a lot to a meal. So using these other t techniques, um, you're really lucky when you have these condiments. And one of the things when I first hit the road hitchhiking that my mom told me is, I don't know where she learned this, but you can go in a restaurant and ask for a cup of hot water, which you can usually get for free. Oh yeah. Get some ketchup, um, get a uh, couple packs of pepper and crush up some crackers, all of which you can usually get for free and make sort of a hobo tomato soup. Mm -hmm. Probably not very nutritious, but it can be that little like psychological pick me up, you know, like you're eating something when you hit really hard times on a cold day. So there's a good way to use condiments. And again, crackers, there's a condiment you don't always think of as a condiment. Yeah. And there's, there's more advanced levels of using packets of condiments. Like I was just thinking of uh, like grape jelly it can often be used as a glaze in certain dishes, whether that's like 
I don't know, like some sort of Caribbean dish or Thai dish or something like that. Because basically a lot of these sauces are just sugar anyway. So if you have a bunch of like jelly packets and you're not quite sure what to do with them, there you go. Look up a recipe with certain sauces and you can use it there. Oh, free samples. Oh man, when we were on the Whole30 diet and I was walking past all these free samples right after Thanksgiving and before Christmas, it broke my heart. There were so many like wine samples and like really fancy cheese. And throughout the year, you can get samples too, just they're not as like fancy. And again, this isn't something you would typically live off of. I don't know. I've never been in a situation that I thought I could live off of free samples. But when you're escaping society, when you're kind of going off grid in a way, um, any food adds up. So you don't pass up free food. So free samples are something to think about. Oh, and something else we found out, I'm not sure if it's true of all, but if you have a local food co-op or you have maybe even a local um, coffee shop, not Starbucks, like a local owned coffee shop, and you ask like, you know, at the end of the day, maybe after five or six o'clock or something, if they have any coffee, you might be able to get a thermos full of coffee for free for the next day. And if your thermos is worth two cents, you can keep it hot for the next morning. You don't have to do anything. And I guess the only other thing I have to say about that is I have heard of um, (laughs) college students like kind of subsisting off of free samples. They'll go into Whole Foods or they'll go to like our one of our regional chains, Harris Teeter, and they'll get uh, a bunch of free samples at lunchtime. And food courts at the mall is another good source of that sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. And Teresa left the next topic for me, <laughs> stealing. <laughs> so this is something I don't recommend because there's so many other ways to get food. Um, and it's just so high risk, you know, to get like a little bit of food, you might get arrested and have just all kinds of problems. Um, not the least of which is that freaking criminal record. You know, once a thief, you're always a thief. Trust me, I know. Um, so, but some basic tactics in case that is something like for whatever reason you need to do, um, anytime you're doing anything that, uh, could be against the law, confidence is your best ally. Don't look like someone who is sneaking around. Look like you own the place. You walk in there with your head held high. You got to have a story. You got to have like some game. And uh, there's this great book called How to Steal Food from the Supermarket. I don't remember who who wrote it, um, but the guy. I, I think it's the same publisher though as um, Ace Backwards. It it probably is. Um, but the guy was a guard, a security guard at a grocery store and just got sick of how much people were getting screwed over with these high prices and decided to, you know, here's what we look for and here's how to subvert it. And uh, he recommends having a shopping list. Nobody's looking for a thief with a shopping list. <laughs> so that really shifts the paradigm. You know, if, the, if you're suspected, they see your shopping list, um, unless you do something else really stupid. They say don't steal food from where you pick it up. So pick up the food, take it somewhere else, then steal it. Never steal the contents or never steal the packaging if you can just take the contents. If you can get it out of the box, leave the box somewhere. So just little tips like that. I'm not going to go into detail about how to steal, um, but those are all helpful things. But I found, you know, I've <laughs> we'll do another podcast on, on theft, um, but confidence. I can't underline that enough, confidence, and always having a story. Um, let's see, all-you-can-eat buffets. So if you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, my mom used to do this where she'd have like Ziploc bags. (laughs) 
and she would just start like loading up stuff in the Ziploc bag. So she would use it as like, of course, you got to pay for the all-you-can-eat buffet, but you get more bang for your buck because you're taking stuff home. And this was at Golden Corral, and they used to like make these steaks. So she'd be walking out with steaks oh my God. with all these toppings and stuff. And I remember this one night, the manager kind of, I guess, got suspicious of us and started standing around our table and <laughs> we barely squeaked out of there but that was that was it for for golden corral okay i gotta jump in there because my ex-boyfriend was a legit millionaire and he stole cranberries by the bag from golden corral buffet and now at least a lot of places don't have the craisin cranberries anymore <laughs> i think it's because of him and also he would take cookies from whole foods and the, like, most expensive chocolate-covered espresso powder almonds from the bulk um, area of Whole Foods. And he would just walk around the store and eat them so he wouldn't have to pay for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one Quality. time <laughs> and when I was a hobo hitting the road, I was somewhere out west and uh, finally broke down and got an all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet and loaded up all my pockets with so many fruits and apples and stuff like that that when I stood up, it all spilled out and went <laughs> rolling across the floor. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> moderate yourself. Um, and continental breakfast, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, if you're, you know, kind of savvy about how to do it, you can go into a hotel and they've got free continental breakfast and nobody's really keeping up with who stayed there overnight. Um, just don't ruin it for other people. So be smart about how you do it. Look like you slept there. Come come from a direction that makes sense of somebody that slept there. Um, I tend to get a coffee first because if I get questioned while I'm drinking the coffee, um, and there's your free coffee, then I can just say, well, actually, I'm considering um, getting a room here. I'm kind of price comparison. Figured the coffee was complimentary. If they give you a problem, just say, well, screw this place. I didn't want to stay here anyway. Hmm. You can have your coffee back. Um, but as I'm drinking the coffee, I feel out if anybody's giving me weird looks or whatever. And then I might consider going to the breakfast buffet, which is a lot harder to talk your way out of. But always have a story. That's, that's the confidence. <laughs> that gives you confidence is you know you've got some kind of story. doesn't have to be a great one, but you're not caught red-handed speechless. You've got some kind of story. Um, people don't know they live in stories. So I found if you're really strong with your story and you know that you, you're using a story, your story can actually kind of eclipse another person's story. It's a, I don't know, it's a strange thing that happens with the stories. Um, bank coffee, you can go in a bank and uh, the coffee is for the customers, but all you have to do to be a customer is just ask some, like, what's your interest rate right now if I open a savings account? Let them say their little spiel, walk over to the coffee machine. Um, you know, getting free coffee was a big thing for me. Uh, something I've tried a couple times when I was younger. I just wanted to try all the ways to steal. I thought stealing was like a survival tool I really wanted to figure out. I don't steal much anymore. Um, it's just too risky, and there's other ways to go about things. Is to eat half of a sandwich from a fast food place, stick a hair in it, one of your own <laughs> hairs, and then, then go up there and complain. You'll get another burger. Um and finally, and, and again, this is for, I know some of this stuff might seem underhanded to some of you. This is for people who need it. Um, this is for people who are finding ways that the food is not under lock and key. I want to give you every resource I can. It's up to you to decide what your ethics are about it. Um, and the buffet bandit. This is Gumby's mom's favorite story. Yeah, she used to do this with me, um, along with another one of my friends, Jelly Bean. But 
I'd say, hey, you want to go do the buffet bandit thing? And it's also called Dine and Dash. And again, like have a story. So our story was we'd go in, we'd get the buffet, we'd eat, you know, all we could. And preferably we'd get something to go because, again, just like the shopping list, you're expected to kind of be running out, you know, sneaking. If you're carrying leftover food, you don't look like a criminal. (laughs) And I would tell whoever I was with, you just like walk out with the leftover, the the food that we have. I'm going to go to the bathroom. If they stop you, no problem. You're not doing anything wrong. You said, oh, I'm sorry. He was, he's going to pay for it when he comes out. I see that you're held up. I come. And of course you have to have the money to pay for it. I come out and I pay for it. But if you don't get stopped, you go out to the car, you wait for me. I come out of the bathroom. If I get stopped, I say, well, I thought they already paid for it. Are you sure they didn't pay for it? (laughs) And if they push it, all right, I'm busted. I got to pay for it. But nobody's calling the cops because I'm paying for it. It's just a little bit of confusion. But that little window of confusion might be the window I need just to get out of there. But it turns out by just having the story, the story gave us confidence to do it. (laughs) And we never needed the story. Never got caught. Um, there's a re- at least one restaurant that we used to do this all the, all the time that closed down. Um, there's another restaurant that we used to do this all the time, and now you have to pay before you go in there. Right. I was about to say, this has to be one of the buffets where you pay after the buffet. <laughs> so again, high risk. I don't recommend stealing. Um, there's just other ways to get food. It's just, to me now as an older person, it's not worth the risk. But it should go in your toolkit of uh, one way, like, there's no reason for anybody to be hungry. And if all the other things aren't working for you for some reason, fuck yeah, you steal from these corporations. They can afford <laughs> it. They are stealing from you. Um, and I just wanted to point out one movie I like in regard to this, which is Captain Fantastic. I've mentioned this before, starring Viggo Mortensen. I love when his family is coming out of the woods and they're figuring out how to eat. And he takes him in the grocery store and he fakes a heart attack. And while everybody's like gathered around him, his kids are just loading up the shopping carts and like taking out to the bus. And the way he describes it is uh, liberating the food. <laughs> oh. So I really like that. You know, he wasn't teaching his kids like, you're, you're stealing. It's like this food shouldn't be in, the, in there in the first place. There is, an, lock and key. there is an injustice being done with what's happening here with this grocery store. So you're liberating the food. You're giving it back to the people. So I really love that part of the movie. <laughs> now, Teresa, you can continue with your more uh, less risky topics. Getting back on board. I, I do certain things that are probably, well, they are considered illegal, but I like to switch stickers on stuff. So, or save stickers. You don't have to say you did it, Teresa. You can just say people do it. People often. That is um, an admission of guilt. If it's, well, if it's a loose sticker on something that's maybe like a coupon, a coupon, or maybe you have a product that looks similar, but one of them's less expensive. um, If you go to the self-checkout, you can do that a lot of times. And yeah, um, enough about that. You can look into it yourself. Mm -hmm. So gleaning. Um, I got you scared, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. So gleaning, it's... Okay. I gleaned sweet potatoes one time. This was actually with the ex-boyfriend that was a millionaire because he's so freaking cheap. But it was a really good thing for me to see. Here's the story. He had a bunch of land that he rented out to sweet potato farmers. Now, the sweet potato farmers had a contract with Walmart. Walmart only accepts sweet potatoes that are a certain size and shape, leaving all the sweet potatoes that are too big or too small or too weird looking in the field. And they rot in the field. They also bring in vermin and possibly other pests that would then require the farmer to use like pesticides, other things. 
So we took a bunch of five-gallon buckets, went out into the field, and gleaned sweet potatoes. Here in Durham, I've seen, I would call it a mess of sweet potatoes, next to a church at a certain time of year. And this is annually. So um, if you're interested in gleaning and you happen to belong to a church, or you don't mind, like, you know, going to a church and asking them if they glean, if you can participate, that's a good um, avenue to get your foot in the door. I also had a friend or have a friend who has a small market garden, uh, meaning that he grows things on a small scale, but he has enough food to take to like a farmer's market or to sell to local producers or restaurants. And I asked him if I could help work on the farm. And afterwards, if there were, let's say, cucumbers that were like a little too far gone, they didn't look right, but they taste good. I could have those. Or if there was just a bumper crop of zucchini or something like that or other types of squash, I could have those. And oftentimes you would find them in like really tall grassy areas of the uh, of the field. And let's see, what else do I have to say about that? Oh, if you're curious about how to start, I found this interesting. USDA.gov, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, has a government website that talks about gleaning. And let's see. They consider gleaning also from grocery stores, supermarkets, as well as restaurants. So I have a friend who lives here in Durham, and I think I mentioned this before. Um, for years, uh, she would go to Whole Foods as well as Earth Fair. And this was legit. I mean, she belonged to a mosque, um, and they had a food pantry. So she would go to the stores, pick up boxes, like big banana boxes full of all sorts of foods, even cleaning supplies and other things, toiletries. Um, and she would put them on her porch so that then the people that were working with her in the food pantry um, at the mosque, they could come and pick them up and put them you know, on the shelves or whatever, sort them out. But when she had extra stuff, she also invited her friends to come and get it, as well as, you know, some things that people wouldn't take, like maybe bags that were, like, half-opened, they were slit somehow um, accidentally. So she would take those for herself. Because you get, to, you get to understand that just because something doesn't look pretty doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, um, unless it has some sort of, you know, sinister-looking thing on the outside of the package or it's something that could potentially go bad if it's opened. Uh, most of the time, you're going to be fine. But yeah, USDA.gov, if you look up gleaning, um, they'll give you a, a number of good ideas to talk to people at food pantries and churches or how to start your own gleaning um, local chapter. Let's see. Gleaning. So basically, gleaning is just taking stuff that's left over from the crops, stuff that maybe the farmer can't buy or can't sell, excuse me, or that um, is just extra, like they can't do anything with it, which is funny because there's so many people that are supposedly going hungry. Oh, and um, I also, well, Gumby wrote down, you can also work on a farm during the growing season, which is what I did with my friend's farm, um, which is how I got like extra cucumbers and squash and stuff like that. Dumpster diving. We've talked about this at length. Yeah, for our first episode of season two, dumpster diving, and I believe that's episode thirteen. Um, if you, there's a lot of details about dumpster diving there. Mm-hmm. Did you know that in 1935, the Dempster brothers were the first to market dumpsters, and they called them Dempster dumpsters. 
This was in Knoxville, Tennessee. Doesn't that sound like a corny joke your uncle would tell you or something? Ah, we're the dumpster dumpsters. <laughs> Um, dumpsters are also called skips in other parts of the world, and they're picked up by lorries, which are trucks, which I just wanted to say. Lorry. Um, let's see. What else do I have to say about dumpster diving? Gumby, you want to jump in there? I don't want to say too much about it since we've already covered it, but just uh, to add it to our list. Um, and um, I guess the only thing I really want to say about it, since if you're interested, like I said, go to dumpster diving and. Uh, I don't want to be so repetitive since we have other stuff to talk about. Um, but consider that this is a diminishing resource. More and more locks are getting on dumpsters. More and more compactors are replacing it. Like this is getting harder and harder because at the same time, it's also getting more popular. There's all these Facebook pages of, uh, how to dumpster dive, um, which at the same time, they might be sharing stories. Mostly what I see is people bragging, like, look what I got, which is encourages other people. I see people all the time, like I've never been dumpster diving. Can you tell me where to start? At a dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's, uh, yeah, I don't think it's doing the dumpster divers a service. Uh, you got more and more people. There's more and more competition. And um, consider that we have all these protests about this right, this thing, and yet food, perfectly good food, is like filling up dumpsters, and they're locking it up so nobody can have it. And when's the last time you heard a protest about this? We should be, as a people, going and busting holes in these compactors. We should not allow compactors and locks on these dumpsters. But we do. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know what that says about us as a culture, but I think it just kind of adds up with everything else, and it's not good. That's all I got to say about dumpster diving right now. And I'll add, um, because the next bullet says, like, we allow the insanity of waste, which, you know, locking up garbage. Um, each year, well over a billion pounds of food are thrown away in the United States. Um, 2009, an estimate, 20% of the food in America is wasted. And there's another, that was actually from the USDA.gov website. And then there's the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. And they say roughly one-third of the food produced in the world for human consumption every year gets lost or wasted. Lost, I, um, I think, means that it is uh, no longer fit to sell. So something happens in the... Uh, production process or like the, um, what am I trying to say, harvesting process that they can't, like it, it's not refrigerated or something. But imagine all of the things that we do, all of the resources it takes to grow food and we're just throwing it out. And it might not seem like that big of a deal in the United States, even though I, I gave you some numbers on the people that are like on the SNAP program for food stamps. But in other parts of the world, we've fucked them up by introducing them to our way, our culture, and so now they're having to um, spend even more of the money that they don't have for food, and here we are just throwing it out. Um, Gumby, do you want to add anything to that? I just can't think of something that deserves more of a protest, more of a reaction than wasting food and uh yeah, I just underlying what I already said. I'm just disgusted that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm around all these people that like 
get on board with these causes, these minority groups, and yet these same people don't give a shit about wasted food when there's hungry people, when there's poor people, um, and it's just prevalent. It's everywhere, and as Daniel Quinn points out in that quote I just said, it's such a fundamental part of survival, how you eat, and that just gets overlooked. Um, it's insanity. Along with um, dumpster diving and gleaning, you can, I mentioned my friend did this, you can ask um, at stores or restaurants, and this is also, you know, like I said, it's considered gleaning. And on the USDA.gov website, again, this is an amazing resource, and it's from the government, which is really strange. They talk about the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act that was passed in 1996. It removes all liability in regard to food donations from donors if the donors take the necessary precautions to ensure the safety of the food. So in other words, if they've got a bunch of fish that's been sitting out in the sun all day, um, probably you don't want that anyway. But what often happens is there's different workers in the different departments of the grocery store or in the restaurant at the end of the night or even in the middle of the day, Gumby, Gumby and I have found, um, these workers are going out to the dumpster and tossing stuff, and it's there's it's still cold. Like, it's still refrigerated or frozen. Um, sometimes they even wheel carts of food into the cooler to keep it fresh in the event that a church is going to come and pick it up or whatever. But they can't keep it forever. So if the church person doesn't come and pick it up or the food pantry representative or food not bombs, um, then they throw it out. And if they've done their best to keep the food preserved, then they can give it to you. So what does it hurt to ask? Yeah, and I've seen Teresa use this to really good effect. Uh, when we were in California, we were running out of dog food, and you walked into at least two oh, um, right. pet stores and just asked, <laughs> do you have any like dog food bags that have broken or that you're getting rid of? And I think both times you came out with something, some kind of dog food. And I've also seen during a houses <laughs> retreat where you just walked in and asked for coffee and got coffee. So this is something that uh, I overlooked all the time, but... I think amazing things can happen when you just walk into some place and ask, because I think very often you cut through the corporate bullshit and directly address the human. And I think very often humans have seen how much stuff is just getting thrown out in the dumpster and everything. And so very often you're going to run into a human that's like, sure, I'll help you out. And if you can get uh, some sort of, I don't want to say organization, but if you can get a group of friends together, whether that's at a like a church, which I don't really belong to, or some some sort of group that maybe you already belong to, like, I don't know, like a Audubon Society group or something, and you have kind of that power, that story to go into the establishment and say, like, you know, my uh, my organization is looking to help feed the hungry. That That would probably give you a lot more clout to that strategy instead of just being like me. <laughs> but it worked. Or just go in there and be, you know, completely upfront. And when you think about why you wouldn't do that, if you really dig into that, it uh, could be ego. And I can't think of something more important to work on in your life than your self-importance. Um, we read a lot of Carlos Castaneda, reading our way through that. And as Don Juan keeps teaching him, the biggest enemy to a man of knowledge, to someone who's gaining this knowledge of the universe, is self-importance, thinking you're better than everything else. And that's what comes up when you think about asking somebody for something. Your self-importance jumps up and says, oh, it's going to be embarrassing. Maybe let that embarrassment do its thing. And I just happen to be a natural bag lady, so <laughs> I'm okay with that. Um, we mentioned Ace Backwards' book. I believe it's How to Survive on the Streets. 
how to go down without going out, I think. Ah, uh, yeah. I remembered go down. Yo. Um, I remember that we messed up the title before, but look up ACE, A-C-E, backwards, um, W-O-R-D-S. And he had this kind of interesting, interesting trick. It probably works best in a city where you've got outdoor seating or at least a bunch of different restaurants that aren't um, like chain restaurants, maybe local owned restaurants. So he called it his leftover trick. And people often leave food on their plates at the end of their meal. And before the bus boy or bus person comes to clean off the table, he would, you know, kind of scout out the, uh, the scene. And then he would just casually move over to that table and start eating. And nine times out of 10, unless it's just a completely empty restaurant, people aren't paying attention and probably people don't care. I haven't done this personally, but it seemed to work for him. Yeah, this doesn't appeal to me, but probably because I'm not familiar with it. But uh, he, like, you'll find if you do any of this stuff, you'll get a whole routine. There's so many little details. And when he describes it, there's all kinds of little details about, like, what he's looking for, how long the person has to be gone, where he puts his backpack, where he sits next to the food before he, like, pulls the plate over to him. I mean, like I've learned, like, with the Buffet Bandit thing, he learned the same level of detail of, like, okay, this is what works. So I just thought it was an interesting tool that we have not found we needed to use. But Although I will say if there's leftovers, like, we were at the um, – we were doing the houseless retreat, and we we just – no, I don't know if we saw the person, but we passed a garbage can, and we saw a bunch of tortilla chips that a lot of times people, you know, they get a meal and they throw the tortilla chips out. I'm okay with eating that. Mm-hmm. And here's another tool that I have not personally done, but I read about, um, I've talked a lot about Bernie Glassman and his street retreats. It was uh, like a Buddhist retreat that the Buddhist would live like uh, homeless people for a week. And in his book, he describes how at least one person got food for the week by offering to busk tables. He just talked to the manager of a restaurant and said, um, is there any way that like, if I could clean the tables off for you, that I could take the leftovers? And at least once, for at least one person, that worked. So there's another uh, idea in your head, you know, as you're liberating this food from the lock and key, that that might be yet another way just to offer, you know, a little bit of work for a little bit of food, the leftovers, and start paying attention when you go in a restaurant. Like when I'm talking about leftovers, I'm not talking about chewed up mashed potatoes. Um, People leave (laughs) really good food on their plates. It drives me nuts. Um, even when I'm not hungry, just because I resent waste so much, I, I want to go over there and just, like, take the food. Matter of fact, next time we go to a restaurant, I might do that. But I don't know. We'll see. Mm. The next podcast might be from prison. <laughs> um, panhandling. So panhandling, you know, people have signs. Um, usually they're asking for food, um, but what often they want is money. Um, because food, there are other ways to get food. And if you've never been on the streets, you might resent them. Like, oh, they're just buying alcohol or drugs. Sometimes they're medicating themselves because they don't have the ways that you have to medicate yourself. They can't just sit on their ass and watch TV after work. Um, You know, like their version of that might be a bottle of wine or something to get them through their day. But anyway, panhandling is another way to work on your ego. Get out there with a cardboard sign. My God, Um, you really have to do some soul searching, some self-exploration, and really face down that big, vicious demon of your ego to stand out there, and it's another form of asking. And if you're truly like after food, you know, you might get food, you might get money to go buy food. But again, asking, it's kind of a beautiful thing. I've only panhandled once, and uh, 
it took a lot for me to go out there. I have social anxiety, so being out there in that way, you know, getting people's attention that often um, they're looking down on you, whew, that was tough. But I felt kind of giddy afterwards. I felt very uh, glad that I did it. Um, it was definitely humbling. And busking, um, not just busking tables, but sitting somewhere busking and like... Tables. Huh? Busking tables. Busing. Okay, that's busing tables. Busking, um, sitting out there, if you can play a musical instrument. I've heard of people doing all kinds of things for busking, like reading poetry from a book, um, sitting out there with flowers they picked and putting little paper cups. But it's basically panhandling, but with something, where you're trying to offer something back. And that can be another way to... Um, get food, you know, just people are inundated with food. People are getting filthy, rotten, obese with food. Mm -hmm. They've got problems because of all the food they've got. So don't feel so bad about asking. You're not taking it from anybody who doesn't want to give it. And if people feel pressured because of their guilt, there's a reason they feel guilty. Mm -hmm. Our whole culture, the way we have this class discrepancy and we all are accepting things that aren't available to other people, we should feel guilty. It's because we know something's wrong. Even though we've been taught that it's okay our whole lives, there's something deeper. There's a deeper wisdom in us, and that's where this guilt comes from, this guilt that won't go away. It doesn't serve the government to have this guilt. Um, it would serve the government for us to just all be completely disdainful of the poor and run them out of town like rats, but that's not what we find. We know something's wrong. Um, so, yeah, like... Let people, you know, like I, I find often when I have that kind of exchange, it's a win-win. Uh, the person feels good. They did something. You know, they didn't just fucking like try to hustle somebody out of money like you got to do at work all day. They just gave willingly. They felt good. It improved their day. And you feel good because there's at least one person that's not a selfish asshole that shared with you, that saw the humanity in you. It's a beautiful little moment. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't just shy away so quickly from those busking and panhandling situations. We, we must have been entertaining a number of McDonald's employees last month when we cleaned out the minivan. This happened to be when we were on our um, very restrictive diet. Gumby got so mad because they brought over not only, like, what, double cheeseburgers, plural? Two double cheeseburgers, a big order of fries, I think uh, two bottles of water, which is the only damn thing we could drink because of this diet we were on. <laughs> I was so, like, desperate, I even, like, licked the cheese and they were still hot. I haven't. I hadn't had a cheeseburger. We couldn't eat bread. We couldn't <laughs> eat dairy. Um, had to give it all to Sherlock that night. But and oh my even... God, it was torturous. And especially since it was an act of kindness. Mm -hmm. I mean, that made it even worse because it wasn't just somebody. Hey, you want to go to a restaurant? And I could say, Oh, I'm on this diet. But she just, out of the kindness of her heart, did this beautiful thing. Came out. I think it was a manager at McDonald's and brought us food. You know, no questions asked. Here's food. And I couldn't eat it. I felt it felt like a sin. She even brought out three separate hamburger patties in a box for our dog. Yeah. That was terrible. Gumby almost killed me. Um, found change. Hell, I find five dollar bills. Um, I don't know if it's inflation or what. I mean, we often do find pennies and everything, but on a particularly windy day or after a rain. I seem to find $5 bills in puddles. So keep your head down. Yeah, and this is kind of a strange one because we're talking about food under lock and key, and so you're still buying food, but <laughs> you're not having to work for the change. So if you just keep your eye out and pick up all the change you see, uh, you might be surprised how much that can accumulate to buy just something, even daily, depending on where you're at. And I have a special little change container that if someone's asking for money, I will give them money from that change container. 
All right, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. This was all kind of food more closely related to society, and we're going to take a step back of like food that's not under lock and key, that's more um, outside of what our culture provides, whether you're uh, getting government assistance or stealing it or asking for it, um, just a little further out, that next rung. Um, I wanted to share a quote by Derek Jensen from his awesome book, A Language Older Than Words. He writes, 60 days, he says, that's how long it takes before people begin to die of starvation. 60 days. Dave can't quit his job because in 60 days his children will die. No longer can Dave kill and eat Eskimo curlews from a flock that one day may have passed directly over the spot where now he lives. No longer do most of us, myself included, have the skills to raise or gather our own food. We are members of only the third or fourth generation in the history of humankind who have not known how to build our own shelters. I say I want a revolution and that I want to shut down the machine, but until we find a new equilibrium, how are we going to eat? Sixty days. Those two short words, those two altogether two short months, are a primary reason most of us do not rebel. We still have too much to lose. I think that's a really important thing that ties right into Daniel Quinn's uh, observation. Um, And so we're about to talk about some skills that will hopefully get us regaining some of these skills that it used to just be taken for granted. Like people knew how to eat from the land. The land has food. We don't need people to do anything out there magical to bring us food. Um, but this is a lot more skill oriented and takes a lot more practice. So like all the other things I've talked about, shelter, water, fire, food, practice, practice, go out there and practice before you need it. If you think you know it because you got the theory, you don't know it. Go out there and practice. And if you got lucky the first time, second time, third time, do it 10 more times. Practice. (laughs) And, um, I just wanted to jump in there with that quote and talk a little bit about why, again, we can't go out and just hunt or live off the land. We, we can do certain things. We can augment or add to our diet um, certain things, whether it's roadkill or foraged greens or something like that. But the land base has changed so much. I googled acres of farmland lost in the U.S. daily. I don't even know why I did that, but uh, I came up with some information here. So yields or the amount of food harvested per acre of cropland have increased by less than 1% per year since the 1960s. And this is is after all the frankenfood, all the chemicals that we've created. And I'll talk briefly about that um, in just a little bit. The amount of land devoted to crops is declining due to increased pressure for housing. So here we go. We've got an increase in food, which increases the population, which increases the demand for housing, for land to build on. Um, 10% of the world's arable land is in the United States. So like the farmland in the world, 10% of it is in the United States. 31 million acres of farmland was lost to development between the years 1992 and 2012. That's 175 acres per hour, three acres per minute. 41% of the lost acreage was due to development in rural areas. You would think that it's like urban sprawl, but no, it's people that are wanting to move away from that, in fact. And 
The best agricultural land goes first. That's where they want to build, the land with superior soil conditions and weather for growing food. Optimal farmland is lost more quickly, which leads to us trying to grow food on suboptimal land, which then requires more irrigation, more transportation, more energy, more fertilizers, more pesticides. So not only are we decreasing the land base that anything can grow on, but we're also poisoning it. Um, just 17% of American land is ideal for farming. That's about the size of California's entire Central Valley. Now this is also happening in China, where 40% of the arable land has been lost to development, to drought, and to topsoil erosion. We wanted everybody to be just like us, just like this culture. But as a nation's wealth increases, so too does its demand for food, for calories. The calories increase. We've lifted many Asian countries out of poverty into the middle class. And for the first time, they're eating meat more regularly, which takes more land to raise the animals for meat production. Here's another example. So let's see. California produces 80% of the global almond supply supply and, <laughs> and consumes 10% of the state's water supply. So not only is California exporting almonds, but they're also exporting 10% of their water supply, their precious water resource. 91% of acreage for fruit, nuts, and berries are directly in line for development because the adjacent, uh, because they are adjacent to land that qualifies as a metropolitan area. In addition, our glorious policies by uh, the liberals created the Energy Policy Act of 2005 and the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007, where the government wants to turn food crops into fuel crops or subsidize farmers to not grow food at all. They've created a renewable fuel standard. It's a federal program requiring that transportation fuel contains a minimum volume of renewable fuels we know as ethanol. And the final thing I'll talk about is uh, about the land base is U.S. farmland is being bought up increasingly by foreign investors. And this is dangerous because if foreign investors are buying more and more of our land, it's going to increase the food prices, not only for the U.S., but for the world. Um, many of the foreign-owned farm properties are slated for wind farms rather than grain. So we're taking this suboptimal land, the stuff that's left after we haven't built on it, and we're turning it into just straight-up profit. Um, Canada is among the largest foreign owners of land in the United States, along with places like the Netherlands, Germany, the UK, Italy, Portugal, and even France. Um, God, I could go on and on, but I thought this was interesting. Netherland, the Netherlands... They are um, number three on America's foreign land investors. They just want the land for cash. It's a safe way for them to invest money so that they can help pay for their nationalized pension plan. So we're taking this valuable land that people could be growing their own food on, and we're just selling it to investors to make money to hell with the amount of food we need or the health of our land. And that leads me to the Green Revolution, um, another reason why we are struggling to be able to grow our own foods, um, the destruction of the land base. The Green Revolution, or the Third Agricultural Revolution, as it's sometimes known, happened between 
the 1950s and the late 1960s, and it was to increase agricultural production. Um, this guy, Norman Borlaug, was the father of the Green Revolution, and he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 for saving over a billion from starvation. Now, that's really nice. Um, I'm glad that those people didn't starve, and I, I don't want to be insensitive. But this was the beginning of high-yielding cereal grains, dwarf grains, um, frankenfood, the expansion of irrigation infrastructure, the modernization of techniques used in farming, hybridized seeds, synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. The Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation heavily, were heavily involved in the initial, initial development in Mexico. So the Green Revolution, um, it was an experiment in Mexico because nobody wanted that stuff in their backyard back then. Um, God, yeah, that also leads me to the uh, amount of poisons that are in our food from this Green Revolution and otherwise. Um, we briefly mentioned in one of our U.S. President's episodes that Rockefeller, with his standard oil, he was looking for ways to use just the waste from his production of kerosene. Um, and some of the products that we have in our food are actually derived from petroleum, AKA food dyes. I'll just name a few of these toxic food additives that are uh, cancer causing or otherwise. So BHA and BHT, uh, sodium nitrate, propyl gallate, carrageenan, polysorbate 60 and carnubowax. Um, along with things that maybe you've heard of even more, like saccharin and aspartame. Um, there's also propylene glycol in our food, a.k.a. antifreeze, that's used to thicken dairy products and salad dressings. Because remember, we got to feed our people um, by any means necessary. we got to keep that machine going. And if the rich get richer doing it, well... Yeah, and if it, if it causes cancer, well... Um, enriched white flour is made from what most people would consider toxic ingredients. They're adding metallic iron to the flour, which was never meant to be ingested by humans. Um, parabens are horm hormone disruptors that can cause breast cancer. There's even uh, on the list sucralose, agave nectar, and high fructose corn syrup because it disrupts the body's ability to uh, process sugars. And we've heard of MSG and sulfites that can cause anywhere um, things from asthma and breathing problems to headaches. And I actually used to work for two companies that um, probably had something to do with the Green Revolution or at least the uh, additives in food. So fuck you, bear crop science, and go to hell, um, Ajinomoto, which is uh, a uh, company that processed monosodium glutamate. Oh, and I get to talk about um, <laughs> our diet. God, Gumby, you want to jump in there at all? Well, I'm going to let you uh, talk about this, but the only thing I want to say is uh, we're talking about detox now because as we're talking about, we're going to start um, going into methods to eat that's not tied to society, and one of the first things you're going to run into is you will detox. Yeah. Um, and so we learned that powerful lesson from uh, the Whole30 diet. Yeah. And the Whole30 diet is uh, 30 days where you're eating meat, vegetables, a uh, small amount of fruit, and staying away from as many additives in your foods as possible. Some of them I mentioned, like carrageenan, um, certain types of gums that are additives in food. Like I think guar gum was on the list. 
And uh, they're basically telling you to try to eat as much the foods that are considered whole foods, not the grocery store, as possible. Um, but no grains, not rice, not corn, not even quinoa, which is grain-like, a pseudo-grain. And there were many different reasons why. I think Gumby had a, more of a detox than I did. Um, but it's interesting to, to witness after the diet how the pains came back, how foggy you feel once you reintroduce these things like dairy. Yeah, if you have any kind of chronic pain and you're not quite sure what causes it, um, it is amazing when you do something like this diet to realize how much of the way you feel, how much of who you think you are is related to this weird-ass food that we're uh, being sold and is being offered to us. Yeah, and it's it's heartbreaking to think about all these different programs and places we've mentioned, like food pantries and food stamps that... Um, up until now, you haven't had anybody telling you what to get. You could just go in there and buy or or select whatever type of food you want. But so many people choose the things that are full of these terrible ingredients that aren't even food. Um, so it's something to think about if you are wanting to escape society is to start reducing or eliminating those types of, uh, of ingredients in your diet. Get that detox over with. You done with that? Yes. Yeah, and fasting, that's something else to start introducing. Um, I heard one survival instructor that taught me years ago that recommended fasting once a week, which I was doing for a while. I don't do anymore. Um, but changing your relationship with hunger. We're so entitled about so many things in our culture. Um, that's one of the things we're addicted to, that we're scared to death. That, that's one of the reasons we don't rebel more, is uh, we feel entitled to things that we know that we're not going to have. We're not going to have that feeling of entitlement to without the civilization. Um, hunger. Sometimes we're meant to be hungry. I mean truly hungry, not have food. Sometimes it's not our turn to eat. Sometimes it's even our turn to be the food. Mm -hmm. um, so I would recommend fasting now and then. That's something that you see in indigenous cultures, like as a natural thing that comes up a lot. Fasting before you go out to hunt. Fasting as a way to honor the food, um, to just not be going out there like a gluttonous pig, you know, to like need the food, to remind yourself of what this is, what this thing is that you're doing to go and kill these vegetables, kill these animals to provide food for you. So, you know, maybe find some way to bring fasting back and consider lax and larders. Um, when you're eating naturally off the land, whether even I'm talking about agriculture as well, um, you can't have oranges all year, you know, for most places you're going to live. There are going to be deserts of, uh, you know, like what I mean by that is you can't have a certain kind of food during certain seasons. Sometimes there are seasons where it's just hard to find any food. Um, like towards the end of summer is a, a desert I think of that I, I have a hard time finding like plants to eat, food to find. Um, the end of winter, of course, that's another one. Oh, and the end of fall when we were doing um, that podcast where we were um, doing our survival overnight with, with a food challenge. Mm -hmm. And, of course, location. You know, depending on where you're at, there will be lax and larders based outside of the season on where you are. You know, are you in the middle of the blackberry patch? If you're not near the blackberries, it doesn't matter the season, um, you might not have blackberries. And so recognizing the lax and larders, this is also a big thing that comes into play with tracking because it helps you get in the mindset of why the animals are doing what they're doing and where to mm -hmm. find them because they're tuned in to these lax and larders. 
Um, we need to do the same thing. And when you find a larder, a huge boon of food, to use it, to take advantage of that. When it's acorn season, that's not the time to decide, eh, I'm not really in the mood for acorns. That's the time to work your ass off to process those acorns. So later in the winter, maybe you will be hungrier and in the mood for those acorns, and you have acorn flour to use as food. Um, when there's blackberries, use those blackberries, you know, whether you're making cobblers or pies or whether you're just uh, mixing it in with your other food. You know, blackberries can even be good in a salad. So just consider fasting and hunger and lax and larders. And along with fasting, I remember reading in the Peace Pilgrim book that she fasted for something like 48 days or something like that. And she did that because she was working on faith. She had faith that when she needed food, it would present itself. And uh, I also remember speaking to, uh, like, when you find food, just appreciating it and, and, you know, it being like this really reverent experience she said one of her most favorite foods was finding blueberries with the morning dew covering it. There was nothing better in the world than blueberries with morning dew. Yeah, and she also said like when she was on her pilgrimage, the way she did it, she didn't eat unless food was offered to her. Mm-hmm. So she said what? She never went like more than like four meals. Like four, she never had to skip more than four meals unless she was wanting to um, before food was offered to her. So there's that whole thing going on that's really a beautiful thing. Um, just having faith that there is food out there and you will run into food and food will actually find you as well. Um, and yeah, I just think that's a really like, anytime I talk about peace pilgrim, we're talking about a whole nother realm. I still want to try, um, when we get back into backpacking, I still want to try that, like just foraging and then just fasting if we don't have anything. I don't know. I might be crazy. We may die. Um, but <laughs> I will have the utmost sympathy for you as I'm eating my cheeseburger. Aw, thank you. Um, something else that uh, requires a bit of work and a bit of know-how is uh, now we're getting into what you can do um, away from society is gardening. Now, you might think that gardening, you need a plot of land, and you do, but there are guerrilla gardeners. Um, so you can find maybe areas that are abandoned or on like the edge of fields or something that aren't being used and try to plant your crops there. And talk about subversive. I really like the idea of guerrilla gardening because you can't own land. This is a idea that was invented by the rich to control people and uh, to get you to play the game. You, in fact, if you think you own land, you don't own that land. There was shit living there before you got there. There's going to be shit there after you leave. Um, Just because you spent some paper and somebody agreed that it means something, you don't own it. You just, there's no such thing. It's a a human invention. So I like guerrilla gardening because it doesn't feed into the idea that you own land, that you're growing crops on your land. Yeah, and Gumby and I have explored different areas for our survival overnights and I just have in the back of my mind, those there's certain places that I think would work for this, whether it's planting potatoes or onions, um, what else did we say, maybe some squash or something like that that is relatively hardy, um, relatively simple. And if you don't have the seeds, um, many of our local libraries here in North Carolina have seed catalogs or seed libraries that are free. You can go and take a couple packets of whatever you're interested in. And so you don't have to pay any money at all, and you don't have to have land. I actually did that when I was experimenting uh, with my own little garden and my own little idea of permaculture, but it was really hard. I am not a gardener. 
<laughs> Me either. I got the seeds to germinate. They were doing great, and then I didn't plant them in time, and my my uh, system for planting them was way too difficult. Yeah, we won't stay on these topics long because neither one of us has really any experience with this, but we just want to add it to our list of ways to get food that's not under lock and key. I like the idea of permaculture, that each um, species that you're planting it works along with another. So maybe you plant something that keeps the pests away from your tomatoes or whatnot. But um, ultimately, I think I would be lucky to grow anything anywhere. I'm much better at foraging. And we had a listener, um, Joe, from Dublin, Ireland, mention wild tending. I believe Dennis from Jerome, Idaho, also mentioned that. We've had two listeners bring up wild tending. Really? I didn't know that. Well, wild tending, I tried to look it up and... I didn't really find anything, and this was using the Google search here in the good old U.S. of A., so maybe it's so subversive they don't want us to know about it. The best idea I could get from what I found was, like, maybe you're planting things that are kind of like herbs, um, but, like, in the woods or something, but I don't know. That might be completely off base, so I'd love if somebody could write in and tell me more about wild tending. And Natural Farming. Gumby, you read this book. I just wanted to throw that into the mix. Masanobu Fukuoka. M-A-S-A-N-O-B-U. F-U-K-U-O-K-A. He wrote The One Straw Revolution and other books. But if you had concern, if you have concerns like I did about like gardening kind of being this invasive, uh, I don't know, it just wasn't fitting your philosophy... He's somebody that really considered that deeply. He called it like, uh, I forget what he called it. It's like no work farming or something. But he believes nature is better at growing things than any human. So he's made a whole study of uh, how to let nature do most of the work. So I don't know. It's just something that you might be interested in as you uh, pursue gardening. And I think if you could find a, uh, a free supply of seeds... Like if I'm, you know, still around here in North Carolina, if I can get more seeds from the library in a few months and just you just cast them out into a place where you think they might grow and then you see, you know, which ones take. And yeah, then, that's, that's actually one of the things he right. recommended. Oh, and something else I didn't mention with gorilla garden, gardening, and I think he also mentioned this, the um, Fukuoku guy, was um, seed bombs where you take <laughs> like clay um, and you like make a ball, but there's seeds mixed in it. And then you could just, like, throw it somewhere, whether it's in an abandoned field or, or some other place that's not contaminated, as, as best you know, and see what grows. And fishing. Fishing is a great way to get food. Fish is one of the few meats that, uh, as long as you're not getting it from a super polluted water supply, if you were in a survival situation, even if you couldn't cook it, um, you can eat fish raw, and it's pretty decent. Um, you can scavenge the gear. You know, you go around places where people fish, and you can get all kinds of great gear. And it's really fun to collect, too, on a, on a pretty day. Um, Collect the fishing gear. The fishing gear. <laughs> um, if you want to be legal, um, it's not too expensive. One time I was going to teach a class on, like, different primitive fishing techniques, and the the place I was working with made me get the fishing license, um, which has since expired. But it was pretty cheap. It's, it's a doable thing if you want to just kind of, you legit. know, be legit. Um, I don't necessarily recommend being legit. I kind of like the subversiveness of um, not going along with the laws, but that's up to you. And yeah, fishing is just such a beautiful way to go out there and you cast out your, your gear and, you know, just wait and, you know, see if a fish bites and, um, there are ways to set it up that you can go do other things, you know, while the, the fishing gear is doing its thing. So definitely don't neglect that. 
Um, and a more primitive way is a fish spear, which strikes me as a very hard way to fish. I don't know too many people that have uh, had much success with a fish spear, but historically, indigenous people have had success with that. Seems like something that's more useful in a river. I would think during a time when there were more fish running, like swimming up the river, maybe during spawning season. And of course, we're, we're destroying all that with our dams and killing them off. Yeah. So I would think the times that a fish spear is really the way to go have become few and far between because of the way we have totally fucked up the environment. Um, but if you happen to be near one of those places, one of those golden little places, and uh, you just want to collect like a couple fish to eat and hopefully not fuck up that place as well, um, yeah, consider the fish spear. Uh, I was just thinking a friend of mine's little boy who can't be any more than like five years old. Um, he has become an avid fisherman, the five-year-old, um, by using hot dogs. Wow. So, and then that led me to think about the time when we tried to catch crabs with my, um, with my, my underwear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Gumby's, they were interested. Gumby said that the crabs would be attracted to something that smelled like death and fetid and rotten. And I was like, so oh, on I got a backpacking trip, yeah, we used Teresa's underwear, I and they were interested. <laughs> they were. It was actually kind of erotic to see them fighting over my undies. But we no, needed, no, it wasn't. We needed something that was um, like a better net or something to catch them. But I think it could have worked. And, oh, roadkill. I was like maybe in third grade or something. I was about eight years old, and I got this poster that said, Roadkill Cafe, you kill it, we grill it. (laughs) And I thought it was so disgusting, but I thought it was also funny. And um, I never thought in my life that I would eat roadkill. And one morning, Gumby and I were walking the dog on our regular route. We had just walked past there at night, the night before. And in the morning, we walked um, kind of the same route, and we saw this raccoon had unfortunately been hit. And Gumby's like, it's still, like, it's fresh meat. Um, I'll teach you how to skin it and process it. And so we ended up making a roadkill um, raccoon stew, I believe. It was pretty good. It got a little gamey towards the end there. Um, (laughs) And I'd also eaten a squirrel that was hit. Yep, roadkill squirrel. We also had a roadkill copperhead snake. That was damn good. I wish that would have had more meat on it. And in addition, I've had a roadkill, definitely a deer, um, I can probably think of more stuff, but yeah, definitely a way to go. Now you said like legality of it. Well, actually, if you study the, like look into the laws, just so I'm not saying follow the laws necessarily, but it's always wise to know what you're up against. Like in North Carolina, it turns out deer, um, are illegal. Like if you're caught loading up a deer in your vehicle and you don't have the permits, you could get in trouble for that. But apparently, um, other animals, like if you're caught getting a squirrel or a raccoon or something, that's okay. There's no laws against that. Hmm. So, you know, do your homework. Find out, like, if you're if you're breaking a law, you want to know you're breaking it, just so you kind of know how to treat it. And roadkill is an excellent way to get started with primitive skills because it's already there. You don't have to um, hunt it. It's already dead. Right, right. So you can learn all kinds of stuff, how to skin an animal, how to field dress it, how to render fat, um, how to treat the meat, dry the meat, uh, basic anatomy. It was said in indigenous cultures, kids would come and like 
play with the animals that were just hunted, to see how their limbs moved, to see what they felt like, mm-hmm. to really get to know the animals in a personal way. And that was one of the ways they'd become really good trackers. Um, I learned a lot from playing with uh, roadkill. I actually taught a class at one of the places I worked. I called it Roadkill, the original fast food. And I had everybody put on gloves and just, you know, brought out these roadkill animals and have them move the animals around. Um, Rigor mortis will set in, but then it'll go away. The animals will become limber again. And, for instance, a deer. I I realized by messing with a deer's leg that if you bend it at the elbow, its wrist will automatically bend. Mm -hmm. That gave me a huge insight into a deer. So when a deer is spooked and it tenses its muscles, it's already running. Before it really even knows it's running. I think this is one of the reasons they get hit by cars. Mm. Um, You can't bend their wrist without bending their elbow, at least this leg that I was experimenting with. Um, And it's really neat to increase your perception of uh, how to read roadkill. For instance, eyes getting cloudy. You know, you can get pretty accurate with, like, if the eye is still black and not cloudy. You know, maybe it's less than four hours old. It's been a while since I wrote down all these uh, facts. Um, pulling on the hair, tucking on the hair, how much does the hide slip on the meat or is it still like really fastened? Does the hair come out easily, um, especially around the belly? Um, rigor mortis. If rigor mortis sets in, you know, that's kind of a, a timed thing. You can know if it's got rigor mortis that it's been dead this long. But if it doesn't have rigor mortis, you're not sure which side. Is it mm. not set in yet? So it's super fresh or is it already gone away? So it's older. Um, runny blood. That tells you it's really fresh. Has the blood already coagulated? Things like that. So don't be spooked by roadkill. And if you're worried about getting sick because of ruptured uh, organs, just gut it, clean it really well, and above all, cook it. Cook it well done. Always eat roadkill well done. Doug Elliott, he's a uh, local survivalist and storyteller. He says he likes to eat deer meat just like barely slid across the grill, like super rare. And he's talking about roadkill. Um, So... If that works for him, but I've always recommended, you know, just to be on the safe side, well done. Because what you're talking about when you're talking about getting sick is mostly bacteria. And that bacteria dies in high heat. Mm. After that, you're talking about palatability. So if it's older than you think or whatever, at the worst, as long as it's well done, it might not taste the way you want it to. And you can explore all kinds of uh, things like the way animals taste, like carnivores. I had coyote one time. It's an edible meat. It's better than I thought it would be, but it tastes a little sour or soapy Hmm. so it wouldn't be my first preference but if i'm hungry damn right i'm gonna eat a dog or a coyote or you know anything like that so roadkill is a i highly highly recommend getting into that it'll teach you so much skills that you will want to be practiced in if you continue that path and get into trapping hunting and that kind of stuff and i'll say um from a former vegetarian's perspective i had so much more respect for other beings once I saw the insides of it. And I'm not saying like, oh, I don't care. There's, you know, roadkill raccoon. I was saddened. But to see its organs and how beautiful, like the construction of the animal and how the different organs look and and eventually, you know, when you cook them, how they taste, you start to really have a much higher level of respect than just like, oh, look at that, you know, raccoon or whatever, whether it's alive or dead. It, you start to deeply understand that animal. Um, so don't be, don't be scared. Um, something else that I never thought I would eat um, are wild mushrooms. And I think maybe it was the second time Gumby and I uh, were on a date that I didn't know we were on. <laughs> he, uh, he found a flush of 
oyster mushrooms, and they were so good and so beautiful, and I was so excited that he had shared these with me. And since then, um, we don't go, we don't get a whole lot of mushrooms, but we've had different kinds, and I've gotten more interested in identifying them as we see them. I believe it was when you saw me bending over to pick the mushrooms that uh, really, like, glued you to me. I couldn't really get rid of you after that. No, it wasn't that. Oh. Anything else you want to say about mushrooms? Um, well, we won't go into details here, a lot of details, because it requires a lot of details to be good at this. But um, if you are starting to explore wild mushrooms, a couple just general strokes is know the Amanitas really well. <laughs> 90% of all the people who get poisoned by mushrooms, it's because of this one family, Amanitas. So study Amanitas, like get really confident with all the things that make an Amanita mushroom an Amanita mushroom. Um, a lot of your best edibles are going to be in the polypore group, which are shelf mushrooms. They don't, uh, they tend to grow on the sides of things like chicken trees. Of chicken of the woods is awesome. It actually smells and tastes like chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is, I'm not a big fan of mushrooms, like get buying them from the store, but I am a huge fan of wild mushrooms. You've got, they are a magical food and they're so easy to gather if you know what you're doing. Like with plants, often you got to work a lot to get a little bit. With mushrooms, you can just grab a chicken of the woods and have, like, a week's worth of food. I mean, it's easy food, and it's good. You've got, like, candy caps that as they're drying, they fill the whole house up with the smell of maple syrup. Mm -hmm. And they're so good that people will chop them up and put them on ice cream. It's like a dessert mushroom. You've got cinnabars that are spicy that are good in salads. I mean, mushrooms are just incredible. It's an incredible life form, the fungi, and really offers such a wonderful food. And the caretaking is different too, because mushrooms are like the fruiting body of the mycorrhizal organism underground. So it's like picking an apple rather than a plant. You're not killing the organism. You're uh, just taking part of its fruiting body. So that's another thing I like about mushrooms. But yeah, get to know your mushrooms. Uh, People that have gotten to know mushrooms, love them. Like you're either a mushroom person or you're not. And don't be scared off. In our culture, uh, our culture being in America, um, there's a big taboo about them. You always hear the horror stories about mushrooms. You don't hear the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories of people that ate them and were fine and loved them. You hear the horror story that made the news. But consider places like Russia, you know, where kids go out, they learn the mushrooms, and it's like picking blackberries for them. So uh, let knowledge be your guide. And I'll say, just like the roadkill, when you start to um, ID mushrooms, it's like this like this magical world of all these different details that you would have never noticed before. And that's all I'll say. I, I think you should check it out. Yeah, I'll try to go quick through the, the rest of our stuff. This is getting to be a long podcast. But insects, that's another taboo that people are like, eh, gross, insects. But uh, try out some insects. You know, there's a lot of books getting written about them. I've had a stir fry with crickets in them in it, and they were really good. Um, let's see, there's like caterpillars when they're big and green you don't want to get hairy caterpillars but the big green like hornworms they can be really delicious um uh there's a lot of insects that are kind of like crustaceans like armadillo beetles um that when you cook them they actually taste like a type of shellfish and if you're allergic to shellfish um they can make you sick and speaking of that crayfish i don't really think of those as insects but i'm not sure where the line is but they're delicious So check out bugs. That is a huge thing that, especially if you're escaping society and especially if the food's getting scarce, that's going to be a resource that not many of your neighbors are tapping Mm -hmm. that you can really take advantage of. Um, Get to know hunting. So um, my hunting story where I learned sacred hunting is uh, 
I one time was doing a survival trip, and we were looking for food. We didn't have any guns or anything like that. And there was this snapping turtle in this pond, and I knew it was my one chance to feed my tribe, so I jumped in as the snapping turtle was trying to escape, and I grabbed it by its tail, and all I had was a sheath knife on my hip. And I pulled the turtle out of the... It was a huge turtle. Pulled it out of the pond, grabbed my knife, and tried to plunge it into its head. I wanted to give it a quick death. And this thing was so tough. It was like made out of tank metal. And, um, God, I plunged the knife in and it barely went in, but enough that like I had to finish the job. I couldn't just decide, oh, this was too tough. And this went on for, I don't know how long it felt like a half hour. It felt way too long, but it was so muddy and bloody and gory. And, um, God, I just, I had nothing against this turtle and yet I had to kill it. And I had to, to find this, the savage energy within me to finish the job. And I had killed things before. I had done a little bit of hunting with like a pellet gun. I'd, I'd set traps and killed animals, did a little bit of roadkill, which I didn't kill it. Um, but I didn't feel it. It was a little removed until that turtle. And I felt this mix of the sacred of, uh, I'd say regret, you know, this was the matriarch of this little pond. I knew I was taking something out that I couldn't replace, something special, something beautiful, this old grandmother turtle. And it was this very uh, bad feeling. At the same time, I was feeling this pride that there was so much meat here. I was going to be able to feed my tribe. This was all we were going to have to eat for this trip, and this would have us covered. Um and I, I think that's what sacred hunting is. That's that's the first time I felt that of like really feeling the loss at the same time that I I didn't feel like I was doing something wrong. That it was a necessity. I was really feeling the price of my food. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, and it was interesting um, when I had to to gut this turtle, you know, the uh, reptiles holds its life different than mammals. So with a mammal, if you have a mammal and it hasn't quite died yet, you, you sever its spinal cord right behind the head and it's dead. With the turtle, I took out its heart and it continued to beat oh for hours. Its legs were still moving, oh like God. pushing my hands away from oh its body no. as I was pulling out the organs. It was oh It was surreal and horrific, but it was real. It's this is food. This is the price you pay for food. Um, yeah, so I will always be grateful to that turtle. It taught me a lot about food. I do not like hunting, but I have gone hunting um, mainly with a pellet gun. I don't like how loud guns are, but I think I need to learn more about them. But get to know hunting. Like, you know, go the legal route. Take the classes that they have on gun safety. Um, you know, if you need to go to Dick's Sporting Goods and get all that crap that hunters do and there's somebody around you that hunts, learn it because you may need this. This is a way to escape society to get you started. But don't stop there. You are still reliant on society if you need Dick's Sporting Goods. But you will learn a lot of things that will help you on your on your way. Um, weather, paying attention to where the wind blows, how to anim- how animals act in different seasons and the rain versus the sun, how to camouflage your scent, which has a lot to do with paying attention to the wind. Um, I've heard a lot of seasoned hunters say it's got more to do with where you are in relation to the wind than what you put on your body. <clears throat> Still hunting, just the patience of sitting in one place and all the wondrous things you see while you're waiting, um, even if the, the animal doesn't come around, just like fishing or roving, um, how to move, how to, how to walk and stalk and dogs. 
if you just, Sherlock a couple times has killed something that I've eaten, and he's not a trained hunting dog. Um, so this is a long relationship we've had with the canines, between the humans and the canines. And they still, even just by accident, by being who they are, can be hunters. One time Sherlock killed a groundhog, shook it, broke its neck, killed it, and dropped it at my feet. And I ate that groundhog. Um, so yeah, consider that with dogs, that they can be a definite ally with hunting. Um, you know, get the training, learn about guns. There's so many reasons to learn about guns. I don't like guns, like I said, but, you know, more and more, the older I get, I think I should know about them. Bow hunting, you know, that's something to try out. Pellet gun, I love the pellet gun. It's fairly cheap to buy, you know, as far as things like that. (laughs) I mean, it's can be upward of a hundred dollars, but effective for small game, like, uh, squirrels, things like that. And really gets you hunting, you know, and it's quiet. That's one of the things I love about the pellet gun. Um, I found that when I hunt, it helps to be opportunistic to just take my gun for a walk as I'm foraging, as I'm checking my traps. And if an opportunity arises, I'm ready for it. So for me, with my very limited experience with hunting right now, I don't tend to go out hunting. I just tend to go out with my hunting weapon and be prepared. Or a wrist rocket, you know, the little slingshot. Um, But push yourself further, you know, like cut that umbilical cord. Learn how to make your own bow. Learn about the atlatl that you can throw a spear. I know at least one guy in the mountains that that still hunts with an atlatl. He makes a big old spear out of bamboo and makes has a little curved stick just to hold on to, and it gives it more force. and for that matter, carry a spear. You know, if you see a, an opportunity or in a survival situation, having that ready, you know, some method to kill the animal is really important. Um, throwing sticks, just having like at least two and just taking a shot. If you have a hunting opportunity to throw a stick as hard as you can, if you happen to hit the animal, having that second stick to go over there and use as a club to finish it off. Um, and again, I know this, like, if you haven't gone hunting, this might sound really barbaric. Barbaric. <laughs> But that's kind of what you have to dig down and tap into. It doesn't mean you reside there, that you lose respect for life. Um, when I've had to kill animals up close and personal, I've had to get really savage and barbaric because I care so much about the animal. I want to honor them. I don't want them to suffer. And if I'm sitting there kind of waffling like, oh, God, this is a... I'm indulging myself. It's the most selfish thing. If I was with somebody that was doing that, that they'd started to kill an animal and now they're acting all squeamish, I would just want to punch them in the face. Like, you owe that animal. You better find something in you to finish it off. Um, And that's what I've had to find in myself. And yeah, I feel really bad, but that makes me not take too much. That's a true hunter. That's why you don't take too much, because it, it... is regretful, but it's necessary. This is food. This is the dance, and you will one day feed something yourself. Um, and a blow dart gun. Blow dart guns are pretty neat. I took a class on that one time. Didn't get really good enough where I can make them confidently on my own, but making the little darts. We use thistle seeds for, like, fletching on little bamboo darts in a bamboo um, blow dart gun and just having this, <laughs> this really forceful breath. And it's amazing how hard that dart will go. I could definitely see that you could hunt squirrels with a blow dart gun, and you can find bamboo like around North Carolina. So this would be something somewhere down the road to throw your energy into. But hunting is definitely important. You're going to need protein. And um, I can't really think of many, if any, cultures that didn't have hunting as part of their way to escape, well, not escape society. They didn't need to, but to live off the land. I'll hand that part over to you, Teresa.
Well, we've had a number of episodes where we talked about foraging, whether it's for greens or roots, nuts or fruits. Oh, I made it rhyme. Um, so, yeah, what, what, Foraging Hobo's Garden of Eaton. Foraging Hobo's Garden of Eaton, part one and two season, I guess that was season two? And we also have some videos on our YouTube channel, which we haven't mentioned in a while. So check that out. And do you have anything else to add about foraging as far as... No, I just tie that back in with the lax and larders, you know, different seasons. You've got nuts that are a, a source of protein. You've got fruit in the summer. You've got greens in the spring. And you've got roots in the winter. And, of course, there's a lot of overlap. It's not that cut and dry. But uh, foraging is a dependable food source. Like, you know, hunting, you may have luck, you may not. All these other things, a lot of things, uh, fishing, you can't make the fish take your bait. Foraging, you get good at this, this is worth learning. You will find things to forage. I'm sitting right here in the beginning of January in a random city park, and I'm looking around at wild onions, cress, chickweed. Uh, you know, there's just always something to forage. And it won't keep you alive. You need protein unless you find nuts and stuff. But it will keep you healthier. You will be able to mix it with other stuff. Right, and that gets us to uh, stews. And Gumby had mentioned this, I believe, in foraging, like how you can easily make uh, a little bit of something into a grand meal by just putting it in some hot water and maybe adding some other things you have. Yeah, and the hobos were uh, known foragers. That's one of the things that they would talk about, like back in the day, you know, the height of the hobos, the early 1900s, they talk about, yeah, I'm just going to go off and, like, you know, make a bivy and, and go foraging. Make you a know? mulligan. Yeah, it was considered, like, that's what hobos did. They'd forage. And a mulligan stew is a part of the proud tradition of hobos. It's a community stew, so one hobo might have some potatoes, another one might have some greens they foraged, and somebody might have stolen a chicken, for example, and they can add that in and have a really good, um, hearty meal. It's also known as, I think it's pronounced a burgoo, B-U-R-G-O-O, in, uh, in Appalachia, in the mountains. And uh, I was reading online that in Minnesota and Wisconsin, it's called a booyah. Uh, which I like that. But yeah, just having everybody come together and make this something out of just little parts of almost nothing. Yeah, and the further you escape society, eventually you're going to not have that plugged-in refrigerator. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to start learning about ways to preserve food, and it's much different. This is something that I want to throw a lot more energy into this year and get better at. There's canning. Um, haven't really gotten into canning much, but I've heard you know people who do can, they, they really recommend it. Um, a lot of the methods I know I've heard about canning, you need special equipment. So I'm not too uh, excited about those because that's another kind of reliance. But explore it, you know, especially if you're still in your house. Learn about it. Um, I believe all these uh, skills are mutually supportive. Pickling. Um, I used to think, eh, I'd kind of chalk that up like I don't know how to pickle. It seems like something you got to have special equipment. But apparently mostly what you need is the vinegar, and I have found that in the dumpster. So pickling is another way to preserve food and make it last longer. Um, drying plants, you know, just hanging them up. Um, I've heard cool, dry. You don't want to necessarily hang them in the sun. And water is your enemy for all these ways of preserving food. So ways to keep food dry is important. Hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, drying plants. Uh, I guess this would mainly be used because, you know, you don't want a dried plant salad. Hmm. But like for teas, things like that, herbs. And I think, like when I was in Nepal, I've been in Nepal. Have you been in Nepal? Yes. Um, they would have people that would come down from the mountains from higher elevations with greens in a basket. And the greens may have been a little wilted, but they're actually better 
when you make some of the dishes that have like a, a sauce, which are a lot of the dishes in Nepal and India, they soak up more of the flavor. So having dried vegetable greens is preferred to having fresh greens because they don't often have electricity for refrigeration. Mm-hmm. And you can smoke meat. So if you want to preserve meat, cut it into the, the, the thinnest strips you can. Um, make a fire like, and let it burn down and get like warm coals, you know, kind of put like punky wood or... Uh, hickory husks, things like that. And if you can barely hold your hand underneath the meat, but you can hold it there, um, that's the temperature you want. You don't want to cook it. So you want it to that that heat to just dry it out. It's not quite jerky, but uh, smoked meat, and you can, depending on what you use to smoke it, you can add different flavors and stuff, but uh, that preserves it. And um, the, the simplest method, if you're in a place that has low humidity, like out west, you can just lay it in the sun. So cut meat really thin and just hang it up and have it in the sun, and that can preserve it for quite a bit longer than leaving it raw. I felt like I was turning into like a smoked meat or jerky product out west. <laughs> and jerky, you know, just basically smoked meat uh, longer. So you can go through all the trouble of making jerky, and that's a great way to preserve meat. Uh, I've had some delicious deer jerky. Um, salting, you know, I was saying all the uses of salt. One of the ways people used to preserve food back in the day is cut meat into strips and just put lots and lots of salt on it. And it does require a lot of salt. But if you have that kind of salt around, um, that's one method. And, you know, of course, salt can make food taste good. I like salted meat. Rendering fat. This is a, a skill that I want to practice a lot more. And back to the roadkill, you know, you find roadkill, a great time to practice it. But boiling the meat to get the fat and, uh, you know, you can find all kinds of uses for this rendered fat. Bacon fat, when you cook bacon, that grease that's in the pot, that's basically rendered fat. So you can start experimenting with that. But you can use that for lighting. You can use that for, um, God, Indians would put rendered fat on their skin even to, like, keep bugs away. Hmm. There's just endless uses for this stuff. And your body needs the nutrition in rendered fat. If you just have lean meat all the time, you can get sick. Um you need that fat. You can make pemmican. Once you've rendered the fat, you can uh, ground up the jerky into like powder, you know, just really ground it up and then mix the fat back in and even put like dried fruit and stuff in there and make a super nutritious thing. As far as refrigeration goes, um, you can bury stuff in the ground. The ground tends to be a little cooler. Um, you can use cold streams. We do this often in the summer. Like, find a little place in the stream, build a little, like, ledge or wall with rocks so it doesn't go downstream and put stuff in the stream. Like beer. Yep. You can <laughs> hang up your food, like, in a bear bag and put a wet cloth over it. You know, dip a cloth in the stream and put that over there. Um, I wasn't impressed with our one experiment with that it, but didn't maybe... didn't work quite as well as I would have liked. Yeah, maybe we can experiment more. And there's something called a zeer, which is a way that is used... Um, Z-E-E-R. So look up that word. You know, you can see a picture. But it's basically like a clay vessel with a clay vessel inside of it. And in between the two clay vessels, you have wet sand. And so they'll put the food in the clay vessel. And as the wet sand evaporates, they set a porous clay pot. So I'm not sure, you know, exactly what that means. But as the evaporation happens, it pulls heat out of the the pot. And so that's something that was used um, especially... Um, God, I don't know where in the world. I want to say the Middle East. But as refrigeration, back before we had the plugged-in electric refrigerator. So that's something I want to explore more. You know, what can I get away with? I wonder if the evaporation will work with, like, two buckets. Um, But there's some things to 
to play with, but different ways to preserve your food. Um, you drop out of society and you don't have the plugged-in refrigerator, you're going to have to rethink food. Yeah, you can't be a vegan or really so much a vegetarian without that um, artificial refrigeration of things. And as we're winding up this uh, under lock and key, we, we've done shelter, we've done fire, we've water, we've done fire, we've done food. Uh, one of the things I like about this priority of survival is it works in our favor. Shelter of these four tangible, and of course attitude is the first one, but shelter is the one that next that you need the most of. If you don't get shelter, some kind of shelter, you could die in one night, whereas food, you could go for weeks. But shelter happens to be the easiest. You make a giant leaf pile and squirm into the middle of it, you've got a shelter. It might suck, but it'll probably keep you alive. And as these are less of a high priority, more skill is involved, which really works to your favor. So food is the highest skill. Like, you know, you can make a giant leaf pile and stay warm overnight. Maybe a little more skill for water. You go downhill, you find the water, but you have to figure out how to treat it. So you maybe dig an earth well if you don't have fire. If you have a fire, some way to have a container that you can boil it. A little bit more skill. Um, a little more skill still is fire. You need to know what trees to go to, how to work them, how to make that friction, how to treat that fire, how to care for it. Um, so a little more skill is involved, but fire is less of a priority. And finally, food that you could do without for weeks if necessary is the highest skill. Um, you know, making a container to, to forage, and then you need the protein. You need to know how to cook. You need to know how to hunt. You need to know how to make traps. So it really lends itself to survival. It's almost like nature has kind of set it up um, to care for us. So I really appreciate that. Um, when we talk about hunter-gatherers, people that don't need our society uh, to do all the stuff that we think we need to get food, 80%, it said, of the hunter-gatherer diet is gathering. Um, so the hunters would go out. They may or may not have luck. The gatherers would be the, the dependable source of food. And that's what I found in my survival trips is I would go out and, um, you know, I'd go gathering. And if I found an opportunity to get meat, great. I hope I'm ready for it. Um, stews are a huge part of survival diet. So you start making a lot of stews, and that's a great way to preserve food and to throw together things that you might not otherwise want to eat, but you can just mix it in with the stew and make a broth, you know, and have protein, have all kinds of, of nutrients that are preserved in the stew. And like I said, fasting. Fasting is a big part of this, um, knowing how to be hungry, knowing how to operate even when you're hungry and don't have food. Um, so many people in our culture, we just haven't made friends with our hunger, so we sort of shut down if we get hungry. Um, we get hangry. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm supposed to have food. Oh. I missed breakfast. <laughs> I missed breakfast. We can't do that. We can't be spoiled little punks. We're going to have to, like, get tough, and fasting is a good way to, like, start to acknowledge and make friends with this, this feeling of hunger. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, speaking of hunting, I've had a little bit of experience making traps, um, most of my luck came when we were still in our trailer and we had these mice that I think we've talked about before. Um, they were becoming a problem. We, we had worthy opponents in our trailer. They were, they were very savvy to our movements and, uh, knew exactly how to get in our food and they would poop on everything. So we ended up making some, uh, what were those 
Paiute deadfalls? Paiute deadfalls. And I don't say practice on mice as in, like, I don't value their lives, but we needed to do something about them. And uh, I felt like it was the fairest thing that I could do to make my own traps rather than buy a store-bought trap, which felt like an unfair advantage. And I definitely didn't want to poison them. That Mm -hmm. just felt really wrong. So I felt like using my skills of making a trap was uh, the fairest way I could think of to deal with the mice. And, of course, like shutting up the food, because why are the mice there in the first place? Because they found food. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't think we were giving them enough food for some reason. They were trying to equal uh, the, the larder. Yeah, and it was interesting watching the generations of mice as we had to go up against them. One little bastard was like, really? <laughs> like, he would not go for the traps. If we if we were out of town for a little while and came back, he would actually go outside and shit on top of the car. And he, <laughs> he even shit on my pillow. There was no food there. He would go to the other end of the house and shit on the pillow. I mean, he was declaring war. He was a worthy opponent. Um, so aside from deadfalls, uh, there are snares. Gumby, don't go too far. And... I guess, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of experience with this. Gumby, you were trying to show me a fish snare on one of our um, survival overnights one time. Yeah, I've built and set up a lot of traps, but as far as traps that actually work, which, by the way, is a huge difference. A lot of people take a class, learn how to make a trap, and think they know how to trap. You don't. Um, (laughs) Tracking. You need to get good at reading the land because where you set the trap is huge. And you might think, oh, I know some footprints. No, you got to learn, like, sign tracking, and you got to practice. Like, I can't emphasize that enough um that's why if you have mice and you need to do something about them it's a great way to like actually get the trap working but it's not the same as putting it outside so tracking um deadfalls the paiute by far the paiute deadfall maybe we'll make a video is my favorite trap that is a two-way deadfall trap and i've caught the most food i've caught a possum i've caught plenty of squirrels this trap has fed me many times i think i caught a bird one time um Figure four is another deadfall. It's more commonly known. It's a one-way trap, so you got to kind of block off the other direction. You need the animal to come from one direction. Otherwise, it just falls over and doesn't kill the animal. You can also use a box, you know, if you want to catch the animal alive, which, unless you have a really good reason to, I don't think is very humane. If you need to trap an animal, um, it should be for a needful thing like food, not just because you want to catch an animal, because that terrifies it. Yeah. So, you know, put it out of its misery. Make it quick. Um, I was scared to make traps for a long time because I I was thinking how horrible it would be if I killed something or if I maimed it, Mm. like I didn't kill it well um, or I killed something I didn't intend to. But eventually I just realized the only way I'm going to learn about this is to actually do it. And yeah, the traps work really well. So I've never really had that come up. We watched this documentary called Happy People that was about, um, in part, about these uh, fur trappers, I believe, in Siberia or something. It was in some very um, snowy environment in Russia. And something that they portrayed in the documentary was how the hunters would just go around and check their traps. And Gumby has written down, like, you know, checking your traps, it keeps you hoping, keeps you moving, which has benefits in and of itself. I don't know if you wanted to say anything else about that. Um, well, let me talk a little bit about snares. Um, okay. So there's the rolling snare, which is kind of your typical, like, little, you know, scent snare that you might picture if you've ever seen a snare, T-bar snare. But the fish snare, I've, I've caught fish with the fish snare. Um, so that's a cool thing to set up where you can bend over a sapling and throw out your fishing gear. Um, and if a fish triggers it, pulls on it, it sets the snare and can actually pull it out of the water. So... 
That's a cool thing. Yeah, we should definitely do a video on that. Hmm. But yeah, the traps, like I said, and like Teresa was saying, um, you want to check your traps. So you check it at least once a day. But in the, the act of checking your trap, you bring whatever you have that could possibly be used as a hunting weapon. Sometimes it's only two sticks, the throwing sticks. But you might have luck just running into something. So it gets you, it's like when you're hungry and you're out in the woods, your traps are like the same hopefulness as Christmas morning. Mm. You might have food sitting there and that would be so good. So it keeps you hoping, it keeps you optimistic. And while you're going out there, it gives you a reason to move instead of just sitting around your fire and feeling despondent. And on your way, you might see some oyster mushrooms. You might see some plants to gather and stick it in your pocket. So whether the traps work or not, they get you moving. They're a good way to get you moving. Um, And I think that really helps. And something, I think Gumby had mentioned this before when he talked about hunting, was just like camouflaging your scent. Um, Gumby, do you want to take that over? Yeah, this is a a lot of details to get into for a podcast, but just really quick. um, Camo your sight. You know, you don't want to be seen. It's good to go out around midday because the animals are active morning and evening. So go out around midday to set your traps. Um, Find something to rub on your hands, like a strong-smelling plant like mint or pine, or even if you don't have that around, like charcoal from your fire. Um, and any fresh cuts you've done on the wood, camouflage it with mud or charcoal so it looks dark. Oh, the traps, yeah. Yeah, because you have to whittle sometimes. And you can do this with rocks, too. You can set up these traps. Um, but camouflage it because an animal will notice. Like I've heard it said, this is their living room. Animals aren't just picking random places to go every day. This is their trail. It's like if you walked into your living room and there's this huge new device there. <laughs> Nothing. You may be a little suspicious. <laughs> It's the same with the animals, so you need to figure out how to blend it into the landscape. And they're sensitive to things you wouldn't think they'd be sensitive to, like fresh cut wood, Um, especially animals that have been, people have tried to hunt or trap them before. So be aware of that. Um, And whenever you check a trap, often when I set up a trap, I'll figure out where I can see it from a distance, you know, where I can go and not go over there. I want to leave that area Mm. undisturbed because if I'm walking over there all of a sudden, I've never been there before. The animal's going to be suspicious. Why is there this new human scent all of a sudden? So if I can see the trap's still up, I don't see any reason to go over there, leave it alone. Let it stay up. Let the animal get used to it. Sometimes it takes a couple days. Um, And if I do have to go over there, like I've even heard of people like bringing like a flat piece of bark to lay down and like step gingerly on the bark and do whatever they have to. But any way you can think of to minimize your disturbance on the area. Wow. I love trapping. Trapping is a uh, just, I don't know, I find it to be a really beautiful art. And it's not the killing of the animal I like. It is the independence of being able to um, feed myself without a society that kills much, many more animals than I do with my trap. So a lot of times people are are turned off to hunting and trapping because you kill an animal, but they totally neglect the fact of how many animals are killed, even if you're a vegetarian, to make that farm field. Um, Or to have your house or apartment or Yeah, Yeah, we're destroying a whole planet. So if it's between a planet and killing one animal, um, I feel like the less impact is definitely in the killing of an animal. That's more the natural state for the human to be in the natural relationship between the animal and the human and the last one uh pit trap choke snare and uh anything else you can think of like just inventing your own way yeah pit trap is basically digging a hole 
um, and then like getting some kind of flat piece of rock or bark or something an animal would hide under and then elevating it just a little bit putting a few rocks around it like three or four so it's kind of set up like a very low table Ooh. with a hole underneath it a deep hole and then like this might be set up in a field and then walking circles around the field a spiral slowly close to the closer and closer to the trap beating the vegetation with a stick um, often animals will go and seek cover under there fall in the pit you got to be careful because it could be a snake. It could be anything. This is an emergency <laughs> trap. This is a trap where you just need any food you can get. It's mm-hmm. not like a, a Paiute deadfall where you can kind of hope for a squirrel. And, you know, sometimes what that involves is like pushing the thing aside and having a stick where you just beat whatever's in there mm-hmm. and try to kill it as quickly as you can. Um, choke snare is basically just setting up any kind of snare like along a, a branch or even along a water course that the animal is choked to death. It's mm-hmm. it's an ugly snare. I don't I don't like this kind of snare. But again, if you need to eat, um, things look a lot different when you're starving to death, you know. And that's true of the animal too. I think this is there's a lot of unfair games we play that an animal would not understand. I think it's unnatural, and this is our everyday life. But to do whatever you have to do to feed yourself out in the woods, I think that's something animals do understand. I think that is natural. Um, and sometimes that might be what you're faced with. And I took a class called The Way of the Coyote, and one of the lessons they gave us is they sent us out in groups of four, and they said, invent your own trap. We'd already learned these traps, so there's like, come up with something you've never done before. Mm. And we all did. So what that lesson was all about is don't get stuck in the names. You know, like once you know how a trap works, like mm. you've set up some of these named traps, you can invent these things. You can like, you understand how traps work. You understand that there are uses for the potential energy of a bent over branch that wants to be straight. You can use that. There, there, you can use gravity. You understand a heavy log wants to be laying on the ground. So if you set something between the heavy log and the ground, um, you can use that to your advantage. You can invent something. So that's a really cool liberating lesson. And by the way, for these deadfalls, think about the ground. Like I've known people that have set up a deadfall it falls, but the ground, they didn't think about the ground needs to be hard or oh. something under there. The animal just gets hit on the head, and, you know, you need to make sure it it pinches. You know, there's hard against hard, yeah. So finally, mix all these tactics. We're talking about dumpster diving. We're talking about foraging. If you mix all this together, you can eat really well, and the food is no longer under lock and key. Ride all rides mix all your tactics mm-hmm. uh go to the food pantry mix that with stuff you foraged maybe you see a roadkill squirrel on the way home yeah. you mix that all together you are eating as healthy as you want to squirrel healthier than, fry. yeah healthier than what you <laughs> than what you're eating from the store and a lot less impactful on the earth if you really care about eating in a responsible way and finally cannibalism <laughs> oh god so if you got to eat people you eat people okay. like you know there's the donner party and everything and a lot of people ask would you eat people yeah i'd eat people oh my god and um <laughs> so just consider that you know like uh if i don't believe in the hierarchy of life um maybe i shouldn't go into cannibalism much but, you know, that's just, I felt like I wouldn't be responsible if I didn't add cannibalism to the list. It could be a trigger topic, as they say now. Yeah, that could be politically incorrect. Mm-hmm. But people are edible. I'll leave that. So, um, <laughs> oh. for our... Eat the rich. <laughs> you had to go there. There's only one thing that they're good for.
So for our message, all right, we've got Bill from Switzerland. And our first message we ever read from a listener was from Bill from Switzerland. And he writes, hey, it's Bill from Switzerland. Hey, Bill. (laughs) Thanks for the shout out a few episodes back. It caught me off guard to hear my email mentioned. And when he says a few episodes back, um, yeah, this was Foraging Hobo's Garden of Eaton Part 2 that we read Bill's email. So this was a while ago. Um, I thought you might enjoy hearing about a book I read a few years ago that you may be interested in. Back in 2007, I watched a YouTube video called My Life as a Mojave Desert Hermit. The guy was just crazy enough to keep my attention. A few years ago, he published a book about his experience. It's called Desert Soliloquy, A Perfectly Sane Misanthrope Hides in the Desert by David Rice. It's available on Amazon. Unfortunately, not many people have read this jewel. If you look past his typos and editorial mistakes, he's quite a good writer. It's a book that is hard to put down and is one that I often think about. I sincerely recommend it. I liken him to Ed Abbey. Anyway, I thought you'd like to know about this book. Again, not many people have heard of him. P.S. I just read Quinn's book, Ishmael, upon your recommendation. I'm surprised I never read him. Profoundly good book. Thanks for that. Hmm. So hopefully you're listening to this one, Bill, for the uh, the Quinn reference. <laughs> and yeah, we have actually I've added that book to my list. Haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And I would in turn, I just read a book that I think of as a, a little known jewel. So I'll trade you that one for this one. Um, what was it called? Beggars. The Beggars of Life yep. by Jim Tully. And I think it was written in the 19... Like 1926, I think? Yeah, 1926. But this guy grew up as a hobo as a kid, and he wrote about it. And this book just blew me away. It is so real and so poetically written. Um, but that's... Jewel is exactly the word I kept using about this book. Like, wow, I, I wish this book like was better known. It's such a precious book. Um, and the fact that it was so old, it was such an old book. I felt like it was alive. I, I treated the book itself, not just its content, so respectfully. Yeah, such a great storyteller. So if you have any questions or comments, please visit our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in bread, as in The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin, dot com. You can visit our Facebook page at Escaping Society, and please review us. We like these reviews. Um, I think we've only had two, so somebody's not doing their homework. (laughs) But we appreciate the ones that do. And we have been so excited about doing our podcast, we haven't taken a break between seasons. Um, We're going to take a week off this time because we've been researching The President's Exposed, and the amount of research and homework has been kicking our ass. We really like it. We're learning so much, and we're going to continue it next next season. But we're going to see what it feels like just take a break off uh, or a week off and just like – Um, not think about researching for a a week. But uh, we look forward to, we've got our lineup for next season and are really excited about our topics. So we will see you in a couple, or we'll, uh, uh, you'll hear from us in a couple weeks. Yeah, we won't ghost you. We'll be back. All right, so. Thanks for listening. Yep, bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So...
Thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.